It's the Literary Lectures Podcast, Kings of Horror episodes, reading and digesting books from the masters of modern horror, and viewing the films. Your co-hosts tonight are Vicky Ray, Leandro Ghazi, Craig Johnson, David Grant, and Keith Shago, giving you a word-by-word, scene-by-scene, and everything in between, and everything in between, and everything in between, and everything in between. Welcome to Literary License Podcast, and they're opening for season five. Five years of the Literary License Podcast, and I'd like to thank all our listeners for joining us. And we have a full house today, and let's start out who's with us. We have Vicki Ray, our normal co-host. Hello, Vicki. Hi, everybody. Joe Randazzo, who's flopped over from our Two for One Eighty series. Hello, Joe. Hey, everyone. Leandro Gazzi, who's our normal um, podcast host for the our books to screen or everything in between. Hello, Leandro. Hi, Keith. How are you? How are you, everyone? I'm good. And we have two new co-hosts with us, Craig Johnson and David Grant. Hello, Craig. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hi, everyone. Hello, David. Hi, guys. And we have two um, guest co-hosts with us who I'm sure I'm going to try not to massacre their names. But But you will. About an Appalachian serial killer that's out um, available to buy now. Um, Mm -hmm. And Jim, do you want to tell us a little bit about your book really quickly? Yes, um, it's uh, based on true events about uh, uh, America's first undocumented serial killer. Um, He was uh, he actually admitted on his deathbed that uh, Matthias Schambach admitted on his deathbed that uh, he murdered people on the mountain and no one believed him because he was dying of dementia. However, when the next property owners bought the property in 1889, they discovered all four water wells on a property filled with human remains. Some were butchered and cooked. So mm-hmm. I, I wrote the book, um, kind of like uh, the movie Reverend and Silence of the Lambs in one, because, uh, I mean, it happened from 1850 to 1889. That's wild. Mm-hmm. And where would people be able to buy your book? Where is it available? Um, it's available at any bookstore worldwide. Um, Amazon Books is the best. You can also uh, purchase it at wasaklobooks.com. I'll help you with, with the spelling of that last name. It's <laughs> W-O-S-O-C-H-L-O, wasaklobooks.com. And we'll have all that in our liner notes as well, um, in our show notes, which you'll find at the bottom of the page, wherever you're listening to, whether it's YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, so <laughs> on and so forth. And our other guest co-host is Barbara Venkatraman. <laughs> Sorry, Barbara. <laughs> Barbara Venkatraman. 
Yes, you got Yay, it. Yay, you did it. It took me three years. <laughs> three years. Three years in. We got it. Yes. Hello, everybody. It's uh, Barbara. Here. And Barbara writes the Jamie Quinn mystery series that's available and out now. Do you want to tell anyone else what you're working on at the moment? Um, well, there's six of those books, and um, I really have about tw- I have 22 books that include other things like a grammar book and a kids book and a um, a, a memoir um, that I wrote with my son about his four year quest to um, to get posthumous pardons for the Groveland Four. That's called Accidental Activist wow. Justice for the Groveland Four, and um, he actually in Florida, 70 years after the fact did get those pardons granted. It took a very lot of work and a lot of people, but he did it. He was a college kid who didn't know anything. And he just said, I'm going to do this. And he did it. So that was, that was an interesting book to help him write. And um, I just signed on with a publisher called next chapter. So um, my books are out there with new groovy um, covers. All right. <laughs> They're they're a new publishing company. I've I've run across them actually. They've they've actually sent me a couple books to review. So yeah, yeah, I like them. They're very. I mean, they're very efficient. They're very um, very nice. So that's my newest thing. And right now I'm on a a blog a blog tour called Great Escapes Book Tour. So every day for the next week, I guess my books will be featured. My book will be featured somewhere, and there's giveaways and everything. So very cool. That's fun. That's what I'm doing. And that information at the bottom of our show notes as well. So Great. so now it's about what we've been up to. And let's figure out what each of us have been up to. And we'll start with Vicki. What have you been up to since last time we spoke to you? Which is probably only a week ago. I hate it when you ask me that. <laughs> My life is not that exciting in the summer. Um, it's just a family kind of weekend thing going on. Um, just catching up on a lot of reading. Lots and lots of reading. And just watching lots and lots of horror novels or horror movies, reading novels. Um, I was kind of hoping we get Matthew back on here. We're trying to always outgross each other, it seems, with who could see the nastiest horror flick lately. So we've been doing that. (laughs) He actually has some very good suggestions. I really enjoy his reviews. They're pretty funny. But um, other than that, it's just been really kind of quiet and hot here in Texas. And what about yourself, Joe? What have you been up to since the last time we spoke to you, which was Godzilla? Oh yeah. Uh, well, for the last week and a half, I've been I, I've been uh, mainly reading the Dead Zone when I'm not at work, and uh, I rewatched the movie earlier this week. Um, started sending out uh, some of the um, some of the stuff that I've written that hasn't uh, hasn't been picked up. I just decided be. let's send it out to competitions and see how it does. Um, so yeah, the last uh, the last week or so, I've spent a lot of money on submission fees <laughs> sending it out to film festivals. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just uh, trying to uh, trying to break writer's block on two other projects that I've, uh, I've been working on for a couple of months. And what about yourself, Barbara? You've been up to for the last, I think it's been a couple months now, isn't it? I think we saw you for one of our classic novels. Yeah, I'm kind of in a time warp. <laughs> um, <laughs> Not, you know, not that much. Just trying to uh, catch up with this publisher. I have to write synopsis for everything. And um, I've got some projects started, but I'm just haven't been working on them because I've been doing trying to get this all together. So um, that's basically it. You know, last time we were on this call, I broke my rib. Did I tell you that? You did what? <laughs> I broke my rib. So I'm sitting in this chair and my phone was over there. And I thought, oh, no, what if my phone rings and ruins the podcast? So I reach, reach, reach. I put all my weight on this arm. And all of a sudden, I get this piercing pain. I go, oh, man. 
It wouldn't have ruined the podcast. We have my dogs bark sometimes, you know. I broke my rib on podcast. I don't know how I did it, but anything could happen. Don't break, don't break bones. You know, we're gonna make a little noise. Don't get too crazy on us, you know. I am not moving this time. I'm just sitting here. (laughs) I'm surprised you didn't break a wrist because the book that I think that we covered was quite thick. Yeah. (laughs) And what about yourself, Craig? Craig is an artist. What have you been up to, Craig? Um, just been working and um, just uh, with me and David have got some um, photographs in a local restaurant in, in the Cup of Joy in East Finchley High Road in London. Uh, and that's going to be changed seasonally. Um, but yeah, just um, it's basically uh, like um, there's some pictures of uh, London landmarks, but also uh, one of the, the Spriggan sculpture, which is like a, it's a I think it's a child. It's an eater of child souls sculpture that's yeah. at Parkland Walk in Highgate. And I think it was in one of Stephen King's short stories that's called right. Crouch End. Yep. Crouch End. Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Mm. Um, yeah. what oh, well, just um, <clears throat> been up and actually stuck on Trent working up there, you know, which is like kind of the Midlands of Midland of England. And um, it's quite close to Liverpool. And uh, it's just totally different. It's amazing, amazing me in England uh, how many how the accents change like every 15, 20 miles. You know, uh-huh. I don't know if it's in America, but you know, you go from London, it's like you know, and then you go like a little bit up to Liverpool. All right, everyone, how's that? You know, and then you get up Newcastle, where I'm from, and nobody can understand what we're talking about. <laughs> the Geordie I love accent. The UK. Uh, I don't care. Who <laughs> I, I love a, your I country. Who contacted me uh, from Yorkshire, and. That poor guy. I mean, um, we had to transfer him to like eight different people till we could find someone who could understand him. Because like, he reminded me of like Hot Fuzz, the, the farmer guy in Hot Fuzz, or something like that. We're like, oh. <laughs> that's, what, that's exactly you know. Yeah. It's like it was like a string of vowels. I Wales had the really thick accent though. I think it's probably the wor- not the worst, but the hardest to understand. Because, yeah, um, I think Glas- Glas- Glasgow is uh, pretty heavy. I mean, Glasgow I definitely is heavy. No, yeah, it's like I, 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 I know, but I could listen to them for hours. I love Glasgow. I, I want to go back. You don't like you just use your eyebrows. I, It's great. But you're right, though. That's funny. I have a patient who's on, who has an Edinburgh accent, and because it's very sing-songy, everybody's a pirate. It puts me to sleep. It kind of lulled my pirate. Yeah. Well, good. Uh, what about you? What have you been? Oh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> uh, I play my play playing my guitar, and just I'm writing a couple of new songs and just getting them worked out. And, well, they're already in your head. Like, you know, the, I was talking to a friend about this, another musician, and I was saying, you know, this is like possession, you know? <laughs> you know, you suddenly get possessed by music, you know, right? And I remember Mozart was talking about that, and it's like, it, once you open that door up, it just comes fly, it comes flooding in, you know? And you can't stop it, you know? And it's really exciting, but, like, when you just want to watch the TV or, you know, <laughs> go for a walk or something, that you've just got all this stuff cramming into your head, and you've got to sort it out, or else, you know? And it makes me... Th- think about you know like this this is a gift absolutely a gift from i don't know where you know from another place altogether as leonora carrington used to say about her paintings you know a a daughter has come around she says um oh these are great mom you know she says yeah but she says you know it's not about money this comes from a special place 
And this is a gift from another part of the universe, you know. And I think music's the same, you know. I mean, great line from Johnny, John Lennon, you know, nothing is real. Yeah. <laughs> it's starting to become relevant. <laughs> I guess you got to seize the moment. Seize the moment, that's right. Carpe diem, mm. absolutely. And what about yourself, Jim? What are you even up to? Um, after writing Appalachian, I am actually working on my third novel. Uh, Unexhumed <laughs> is my second novel that is coming out now. It's about a Philadelphia ghost story that takes uh, place over lifetimes, um, like sort of like a Nirvana reincarnation. But um, Appalachian kind of snowballed into a lot since I've uh, released it last December. Um, I shot a book teaser trailer for it of which now um, got uh, requested to be in the Shock Fest uh, Film Festival. I watched that. That was good. Oh, thank you. And uh, um, it's also been in the Titan uh, script writing contest. Uh, It's been entered in in that as well, because I had a ghostwriter do a script. Um, So, which kind of ties in with the dead zone um, with the book and contrast with the film because i helped the script writer ghost writer write the script for my book because like the dead zone i see they cut out a lot of it yeah um, in the film and i didn't want that to happen to appalachian because mm-hmm. with that novel um it's all about the molly mcguire's uh the irish mob that ran the coal mines in school county at the time is written into it a lot of history is written into appalachian and each chapter has its own little segment of history, true history. And uh, I didn't want it taken out. So, but it, I've been pretty busy with that. I mean, I'm getting tons and tons of phone calls daily <laughs> about uh, marketing, uh, wanting to press this into a film. And, uh, you know, That's it's a good problem. <laughs> yeah. But um, the problem is a lot of it is like, uh, half over half of it is like scams and people trying to get me to you know um they're not the right people is what i'm saying yes so well you're smart um, enough to know that they're not the right people that's the important thing (laughs) yeah but uh you know they come at me and they say look if for six thousand dollars we can you know to universal and all this stuff and i'm like wait oh those universal or lionsgate wanted this so bad they wouldn't be asking me to pay money. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So I get that um, a lot. You know, I used to run a literary agency. So yeah, we were quite familiar with a lot of those scans coming out yeah. of the woodwork contact. And then when they contact you on LinkedIn, you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm kind of new to this game because Appalachian, believe it or not, is my first novel. Mm. So I, um, it's, and it's well, hard to get advice from other writers on this. It actually is. Well, it's easy. We know lots of people you can network with. We had we had like what twenty authors with us, and by the time we closed the agency, they were all signed to book deals. So, oh sweet, and some film deals and all the other stuff. (laughs) If you ever need any, send me an email, and I'll tell you which way to go and what venue you need to do. So, ah, that'd be great. Thank you. And what about yourself, Leandro? How's life with you? Uh, I've been um, getting ready to about well, work because I work in a school and the, the classes start next week. Uh, I've been working my allotment and the last few days reading uh, yesterday and stay until 3 a.m. in the morning to be able to read the book because my commitment was read the whole book for today. And I finished today at 12. 
<laughs> oh, wow. So I just live four hours, but oh. I'm all right. <laughs> you can always wing it, Leandro. Oh. No, no, no. Not with this book. <laughs> I want, no, no, no. I, want, I wanted to read it all because I like I really like Stephen King. And I thought, I don't want to, I want to read it. And I did. No, I really enjoyed the book. Well, uh, basically, I've been doing it. was only 168 pages, so there you go. <laughs> You'll get, you get a bit of a reprieve. <laughs> yeah. There's like 600 pages in my Kindle. Nice, I, got, nice I love how your Kindle before. keeps going down to keep saying, you have five more hours. Five point five hours. <laughs> and it's just like, damn. <laughs> it's like, don't remind me every time I go to another page. So wait, a Kindle can actually tell you, like, based on, like, how fast you read, how much. Yeah, it's weird. So what was the I don't know. I have a really strange thing that I do that every time I'm reading a book, I start to uh, start to make the calculation how, how many pages are left. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. You keep flipping through. You keep going. Don't, don't be one of those. I'm going to the back of the book, people. No, you can be an indexer in your past life. <laughs> we know what you people are like. Going to the back of the book first. <laughs> so what's the time estimate that it would give you for how many hours you're it gonna gave me seven chapter? well it gave me when i got to like past the third chapter it said 5.6 hours or uh, something it's about, it's about six and a half hour reading material for dead zone mm. it was about Ugh. 600 pages it was a shorter one i mean it wasn't short like thinner but it was it short been, it could be it or the stand <laughs> no i read the stand just be, so i could say i did years ago Mm-hmm. No, no, I'm not doing the stand ever again. Uh-uh. So, but um, well, myself, I've been up to Money High started on Friday. Um, fantastic! If you're into that, um, it's now got a viewing figure of six billion people watching it across Netflix wow. across the world. So it's their highest rated programming. So the new, new season started that, which is very good. Um, I'm reviewing a book at the moment called Bombshell, um, written by a CIDC, an LAPD officer, which all about the murder of Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedy conspiracy and all the paperwork and everything like that are being released in 2022. So they are going to be released. They announced it yesterday. I believe they're finally going to release all that stuff. And us conspiracy (laughs) theorists are going to be either very happy or unhappy. (laughs) <laughs> I still got my ideas though. It's quite a good book. It's quite a good book though. I highly recommend it. Um when when I finish my review, of course that will be up on our website and stuff like that, along with the other book reviews and stuff like that. But yeah, I, very easy. It's not it's, it's got facts, but it, it, it rolls around and it's written written in a very good way and it's it kind of leads you up to it and then it goes through it and and the different people and how um Peter Lawford basically broke on his deathbed about everything and because, Oh he did, did he? Yeah, so it's quite interesting. So, I mean, that's interesting. I have to read that now. Thing, but you know, it's not bad. And then I got Jim's book to read. That's my next book to read. And then after that, I'm reading about Crippen. So yeah, nothing's good about nothing good about a good old Victorian serial killer that keeps. Oh, going. Crippen! Is that a <laughs> yeah. true story or is it fiction? True story. Sort of. Crippen. Why haven't I heard of this one? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, um, publishers. Um, send me books. I, they send me about twenty to thirty books a month. Oh, I'm going to write it down. Before, so. quite good. I used to know this, this um, real life murderer who was called um, Steph Brizzy in in London, and basically he used to come to our. We did we did this mindfulness meditation group um, on a Thursday, and he used to come along. He was like a social worker, so he'd come along with his. Um, They're always social workers, aren't they? <laughs> 
<laughs> you think it's the workload? You think it's just the, the people they encounter? I mean, what is well, it? He used, to, he used to come with his fresh Melvin worked at the Hampton place in Camden, didn't he? So, who's that? Dennis Nelson. Yeah, Muswell Hill, it was Cranley Gardens, you know. And um, yeah, really, I mean, again, he was flushing things down the, the drain, you know, and people were complaining, yeah, obviously. Pretty disgusting. Yeah, you're going to dismember bodies. You might not want to, you know, you might not want to flush them down when you're living in a bed sit in a house converted that, flat. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, London is a weird place. I'll say it's great. It's one of the most interesting places to live. It in. is. It is. It truly it's really is. Special. I mean, I've been here a long time, thirty years, but uh, still finding things out about it. You know, and um, we've been doing a blue plaque um, thing. Um, like at the beginning of the year, you know, going mm. over with a friend of mine and uh, at the uh, <clears throat> Gabriella, and we just find all these, and it just leads you down all these other strange places, like you know, and you find things out about people, and then you find out about the another part of London that you haven't seen before, you know, because no. you tend to sort of we're very, you know, mm. closeted, like you know, you tend to sort of go your little route, and you know, I think that's really good. It, like I was talking to Keith last night about joining the, you guys, it's like you're just meeting other people and hearing other views and you know, seeing a little slice of another life. And it's nice that you will let us into your weird little worlds and fantastic. It is a weird little world. It gets strange. We all have little weird worlds. <laughs> every, every little beautiful little village has got some. Yes, yeah, got a dark, disgusting little. The dark side. <laughs> story about That's it. That's just the UK, though. That and he's read the Appalachians. They got some messed up shit there. Too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or the Ozarks, you know, just north of us. I mean, there's just, there's just. You just there's there's stuff everywhere. Or Vicky and my family tree. <laughs> or that too. <laughs> or where we grew up. I mean, oh, you yeah. know. <laughs> well, we'd like to go to New York one day. That sounds like a. I mean, uh, you know. we're we're in the butthole. We're from the butthole. Of the to to it's beautiful, but unlike yogurt, it does not have a living culture. So yeah, <laughs> pretty though. Pretty. If you're in the landscape and beauty, you're fine. If you're in the culture, well, you probably come away. Okay. No, it's just like I mean, you know, I'm a bit of a you know '60s uh, like you know, you know the Chelsea Hotel, of course, and uh, you know um, CBGBs and all this. CBGBs, like, you know. yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> CBGBs is long gone. That's a blast for the past. All the punk guys, all my friends, are all punk guys, like you know, Ramones are top. You know, yeah. and there was always Debbie, this album team. Oh. Debbie, Harry, all of them got their I, start there. I was yeah. so disappointed growing up in New York and going back a couple of years ago and going back to that area, going back to the East Village, and it it's be. just all corporate now. It's all mm-hmm. high oh, end really? restaurants and yeah. everything <laughs> that made that area unique is fucking gone. It's gone. I haven't been depressing. there Yeah, they're blaming Bette Midler and Disney. They ruined New York City. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when Basquiat was when you know my, one of my favorite paintings, Basquiat, and uh, when we were living in the village, like you know, they said there was nothing there. And during the eighties, there was a real recession, obviously in America and in England. You know, right? Um, you know, but he said he couldn't believe it when they met Warhol. I don't think Warhol used him. I think he was a good friend of his. You know, right? It's like you know, maybe he was using him to sort of try and, and elevate himself to another position. But Basquiat, there was a great exhibition about two years ago in the Barbican, hmm. Keith, you know, and um, went down like, and there was a key, there was a fridge there and um, uh, Keith Haring and Basquiat 
and a few of the other um, people around the time, like, just, just signed the name and done little pictures on this old Smeg fridge, fridge you know. I just thought, I want it. <laughs> it's just great, you know. Imagine opening the door, like, you know, just going to see if there's any milk in so you can have my breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> This brings us to our Kings of Horror, um, which is going to be our theme for season five, which is our book to um, book the film sequences of episodes that we'll do one per month. Of course, Kings of Horror, we're going to be dealing with some of the big names of horror, which will include Stephen King, Clyde Barker, um, Dean Coots, who's actually agreed to be on our program at some point. So we'll see how that interview goes. Um, And of course, we're going to do some Japanese as well with the author Ringu and Battle Royale. So considering that Stephen King king is like the gateway drug to horror basically a lot of people have read stephen king and it's pretty much been the first book they would, would introduce them to horror so what we're going to do before we go into the dead zone we're going to go around to each of you and find out what your first stephen king book was starting with you leandro what was your first stephen king book um the first book that i read from stephen king was called the body um yeah i was studying english in argentina and and in an institute, and they we have to read that. Was really interesting um, book. They made a movie. I think the movie is called "Come by Me." Yeah, Stand by, by me. Stand by me. Yeah, I yeah. love that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I you always have well all the books that have been from Stephen King. Then you watch the movie, and they're slightly different. But that was the first book. Yeah. And what about yourself, Jim? What was your first Stephen King book? Uh, believe it or not, it is the dead zone. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, it, I, I actually like the book a lot. It had a lot of detail and uh, a lot of similarities. I saw that w- with the way I write and Stephen King writes, he writes local. He, he writes about his, where he's from, the area, New Hampshire, Maine is where he lives, but I mean, it was nice uh, to read a book because I'm from Pennsylvania and back east. I've been in New Hampshire, Maine, quite a bit. Um, and uh, it was nice when I read the book that I see that he's writing towns that I would know, you know, like I've been there. <laughs> so um, like when I wrote Appalachian, obviously, it's about the area where I grew up as well. So it, um, and the detail that he added in the book was pretty good, as in all his books. So, yeah. What about yourself, David? What's your first Stephen King novel that you read? Well, actually, the first, first one is one. My, my dad's a big um, Stephen King fan, you know, and he he had just finished Christine, you know, and he says, uh, "Oh, you should read this. It's really cool book." <laughs> like, you know, and uh, I read it like, and uh, yeah, for, wow, it's just amazing. You know? There's a uh, funny. I was just thinking the other day about there was a Family Guy. Uh, Craig was telling me that um, Stephen King got hit by a truck. Or something, yeah. Know? And his writing kind of went a little bit downward after that because he was yeah. a picture. There was a, there was oh, a I st- forgot all about that. Yeah. Well, Family Guy did a, um, you know, guys, Family Guys, I love it. <laughs> but um, there's one where he's walking down the, the road and he gets hit by the truck and he's, he's writing at the time and he flies up in the air, falls onto the ground on his feet and goes, finished. <laughs> the novel was finished. <laughs> I don't know if the, it's Seth MacFarlane again having a, a jab at everything. <laughs> 
he's just a genius. But yeah, Christine, it was so good. And I, I couldn't put it, actually, I remember, yeah, I think I tried to, re- I think I read it in about a week. It was pretty slow, like, you know, but, um, you know, I, I was just reading it, uh, like going to work and coming back and I'd, on the train or whatever it was, you know, at the time. And uh, yeah, but I enjoyed it really cool. And you know, you know the story. I think the movie's great, actually. Yes. Yeah. No, but there's always, always more in the book. You know, you can condense so much into the book, you know, and uh, the book allows you, it engages with your imagination. So you, you can see at the time, it's funny, I didn't see it being that way in, in, the, in the movie, but you see your own version of Christine, you know, the own version of the car, your own version of the, the kid who gets sort of pushed to the back of the queue all the time, you know. Mm. And I think that's, that's the trouble now. I think there's so, much, there's so much visual stuff coming in all the time on the internet. People don't get a chance to engage with their own imagination, you know, so it dies. And that's really yeah. sad. What about yourself, Craig? What was your first Stephen King book? Um, I, my favourite Stephen King was um, Rose Maddow. Oh, yeah. Um, where uh, this lady, Rosie Daniels, she um, finds this uh, old painting called the Rose Maddow. And there's something like supernatural about it. But at the same time, she's going through a lot of domestic violence with her husband, who is... Uh, it gears towards that he's the devil and he's, chase- he's after her. And then the cop... Um, uh, is getting really near, near the truth um, to try and unravel the truth. And it, it was just, I just couldn't put it down. It was just brilliant. Um, I probably, I might even possibly start reading it again because mm. um, mm. it was really, really good. And you, and you really sense the fear and the, 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 the danger that the, that the lady's in um, throughout the novel. Mm. Mm. Yeah, you're right. I remember. I remember. Matter. We discussed that during our interview, and I sit there and say that when you mentioned that, it's like all the imagery and everything from that book actually entered my brain. I haven't thought about that book for years, but when she said that, it has left an impression. I actually had the hardback downstairs. That was interesting. I was going through my Stephen. I was like, oh, I got quite a few Stephen Kings here. So. <laughs> it's got a nice cover as well. It's like the one I've got. We've had like playing cards embossed, and uh, it's quite a beautiful cover. But it's only a softback. The one I've got. Mm. And what about yourself, Barbara? What was your first Stephen King novel? Carrie. Ah, yeah. <laughs> it was actually his first book, too. Yeah. Uh, and I was really impressed with how he got the uh, high school girl thing down. But then I read later in his book on writing that his wife helped him. <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, the, the high school angst and the, and the mean girls, man, he got it, <laughs> he got it down. And Small for every, schools in, in New England. Yeah, for every she's had a problem, she really got her revenge, didn't she? <laughs> I, don't think that, uh, I also think that with Carrie, Stephen King actually broke the, the uh, writing narrative that I don't think I've ever read before, where basically it was all told through interviews and newspaper articles and magazine articles. Yeah. And I thought that was a clever way, which, you know, when we go into Dead Zone, he has a habit of doing this. Touching on that again, which he didn't hasn't done since Carrie, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, but that was he was living in poverty when he and he finally he sold that for six figures. But yeah, learned that later. <laughs> but yeah. I he was a struggling artist for a while, wasn't he? Well, he was. Yeah. So, I what about it. yourself, Joe? What's your first Stephen King novel? Well, the first one, I, I actually didn't finish it because uh, my my. Um, my parents would get like all these hand-me-down books from like my cousins and stuff. And the only Stephen King uh, novel that we had was The Stand. And I'm like 10, 11 years old trying to pack Ouch. that open and trying to get through it. And it was not, not going to happen. That was my first attempt uh, <laughs> at Stephen King. Um, I don't remember if I ever actually finished anything until The Dead Zone uh, this week. I don't 
think I've finished anything else he's ever written all, uh, all the way through. Sacrilege. To be fair, I think I was turned off uh, on Stephen King because I, I watched a lot of the movies that were based on Stephen King. And with the maximum overdrive that turned you off of him? Oh, my, oh yeah. Probably, uh, probably I like Sleepwalkers and the, top, and the Tommy Knockers. <laughs> maximum maximum Tommy overdrive. Tommy Knockers turn me off. Maximum Overdrive in retrospect is so batshit crazy that you you, you kind of have to love it. But I think watching like a lot of the '90s made-for-TV movies probably made me go, "Wow, this guy's stuff really sucks." And it wasn't until later <laughs> on that I realized, wait a second, okay, it it's the films that suck, not maybe yeah. not maybe not so much the novels. Yeah, because when they're done, when it's done well, you start to see what a genius he was. When it's not done well, which is most of the movies. <laughs> I see why he doesn't like a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When you can see Drew Barrymore with you know the wind blowing behind her hair and it being her being backlit and she's fire starting things, it's like yeah. Sometimes it can put you off a bit of a Stephen King book, um, book to film sort of thing. What about yourself, Vix? What's your first Stephen King novel? I think it was Salem's Lot or Thinner, but I'm pretty sure it was Salem's Lot because I couldn't put that one down. I don't know why I liked vampires. I always still like vampires. And because I went to college in New Hampshire and I was there for four years and I traveled out throughout New England. So I knew a lot of these places he was talking about, you know, and he came to our school and talked to us one time. So that was really cool. But that, I think it was pretty sure it was Salem's lot that I, I would still reread it today. I love that story. I loved, I loved this made for TV movie much to everybody's chagrin. I actually thought it was good. I don't know about the newer ones or anything, but the one with that was it, David Soul. And the pipeline coming from the makers of It, so that should be out in next year. Uh, I don't really. I liked the old It too. Don't hurt me, but I liked the older one. Yeah. The new one was kind of cool. Had the, you know the clown? I mean, he was definitely paralyzingly scary. You know, <laughs> but I just like Tim Curry. I just like you know the beep beep. You know, and the. Well, it's <laughs> just those funny, I love Tim Curry's facial gestures. You just can't, you know, beat it. Part well, the one, problem, I think the, the new problem, one. The problem with it is, anytime you're going to film it, uh, the problem, the problem with it is that the interesting stuff is with the kids, which is always the first part. Then the adults right. are kind of boring, and then you have like, and then um, they all float down here. Stephen King's later work suffers from. I don't know how I'm going to end this. So they always have kind of weak endings. And unfortunately it's part of the weak endings, weak ending sides of his. Some it's kind of lame, but I mean, it, it wasn't that bad. I mean. Um, a turtle that a mocking turtle that basically is overseeing the world and eating the universe. is kind of a bit hard. It's going to always be a hard thing to film, isn't it? So I guess my first book was um, Salem's Lot. Um, my cousin, I was really into Shirley Jackson. And I was reading a lot of Edgar Allan Poe and stuff. And she, for my birthday, she bought me uh, um, Salem's Lot. It's a great book. And loved it. And then I started reading Stephen King. When he was writing one book a year, I was keeping up with him quite well. Then when he got to about three to six books a year, that's when I kind of fell off him a little bit. I think to- Tommy Knockers... Um, unfortunately pushed me to the point where I stopped reading him for a while. But I still have it. I still pick it up periodically. It's like me, like um, most of my friends are really big fans of the movie Gladiator. 
I don't get it. It's not for me. I don't know what it is. I keep. I but, like that movie. Yeah, yeah. but I, I mean, the thing is, I don't like it. Same thing like the piano. A lot of people love piano, but the thing is, is about every three or four years, I'll try to rewatch it and see if what I'm, what everyone loves, maybe what I'm missing. Right. So, Tommy Knockers <laughs> is like me. Every three to four years, I pick it up, start reading this. I'm like, no, nah, I can't do this. So and so, but so saying that I have there, read it's it. not. Okay, so in the case of the Tommy Knockers, it's not just the movie that's terrible. <laughs> the movie sucks balls. It just the movie's sucks. awful. <laughs> was, I think it was an ABC TV movie of the week. Yeah, I don't think they made that. Most no, of they most couldn't of have made that. Movies were. It couldn't have been ABC that did. It that was. Movie. It was. It was a. It was a mini series. Tommy Knockers was, and it had Jimmy Smith from LA Law in it. So you know you're going kind of a on a downward spiral from there. So. brings us to The Dead Zone, which is a science fiction thriller written by Stephen King, published in 1979. The story follows Johnny Smith, who awakens from a coma of nearly five years and apparently is in result of a brain damage, now experiences clairvoyant and prenogative visions triggered by touch. When some information is blocked from his perception, John refers to that information as being trapped in the part of his brain that is permanently damaged, The Dead Zone. The novel also follows the serial killer in Castle Rock and the life of rising politician Greg Stilson, both of whom are evils Johnny must eventually face. Though earlier King books were successful, The Dead Zone was the first of his novels to rank among the 10 best-selling novels of the year in the United States. The book was nominated for a Locus Award in 1980 and was dedicated to King's son, Owen King. The Dead Zone is the first story of King to feature the fictional town of Castle Rock, which serves as a setting of several later stories and is referenced in others, and of course that he would blow up during needful things. The TV series Castle Rock takes place in this fictional town and makes references to The Strangler when Johnny helped track down in The Dead Zone. The Dead Zone is King's seventh novel and the fifth under his own name. The book spawned a 1983 film adaption as well as a television series. So what we're going to do is cut to the synopsis of The Dead Zone. We'll be right back to discuss the book The Dead Zone. The Dead Zone by Stephen King. As a child in 1953, Johnny Smith falls unconscious while ice skating, then mumbles a prophetic warning to an adult who later suffers an accident. In an unconnected incident, a young, emotionally troubled door-to-door Bible salesman named Greg Stilson vindictively kicks a dog to death. By 1970, Johnny is a high school teacher in the small town of Cleves Mill, Maine, with a new girlfriend named Sarah. After winning repeatedly at a carnival wheel of fortune, Johnny is involved in a car accident and falls into a coma. Waking up over four years later, Johnny finds that he has suffered a neuro injury, with one part of the brain seriously damaged, making it a dead zone. As if to compensate, other parts of his brain now show heightened activity. As a result, Johnny sometimes experiences clairvoyant visions when touching people and objects. After helping various people, Johnny becomes frustrated by sensationalistic media reports of his supposed psychic talents. After Johnny rejects a lucrative offer from a tabloid reporter, Richard Dees, to run fake predictions under his name, Dees' paper denounces him as a fraud. Relieved, Johnny hopes to resume a normal life as a teacher despite ongoing severe headaches. The community fears him, but Sarah visits. 
C and Johnny consummate their romance, but Sarah then makes it clear that she has a new life with her husband, Walt, and their child. Sheriff George Bannerman of Castle Rock asks Johnny to help catch a local serial killer. After a nine-year-old girl is murdered, Johnny investigates and reluctantly identifies the Castle Rock Strangler as Bannerman's deputy, Frank Dodd, who commits suicide after leaving a confession. As Johnny feared, the incident reignites the public's interest in his power and he is seen as too controversial to return to teaching. Greg Stilson is now a successful businessman and mayor of Bridgeway, New Hampshire, threatens to kill the people he bullies if they reveal his actions or don't aid him. In 1976, he wins a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives as an independent, having blackmailed a local businessman into raising funds for him. Johnny becomes a private tutor to a teenage boy in Ridgeway and develops an interest in politics. He meets Stilson and is horrified to see a vision of an older Stilson, now president, causing a worldwide nuclear conflict. If Johnny health worsened, he contemplates Stilson's pregnancy, comparing his dilemma to someone with the ability to time travel, having the opportunity to kill Hitler in 1932. Rather than assassinate Stilson to ensure the vision does not come true, Johnny procrastinates becomes of doubt in his vision, his adherence to murder, and his belief that there is no urgent need to act immediately since he has met an FBI agent investigating Stilson as a possible threat. The FBI agent is killed by a car bomb. Meanwhile, Johnny's warnings that a disaster will occur at the, his pupil's graduation party are ignored by some, leading to several deaths. Now believing he must take more decisive action to prevent nuclear war, and learning his headaches are the result of a brain tumor, Johnny buys a rifle to kill Stilson. As the next rally, Stilson begins his speech and Johnny shoots from the balcony. He misses and is wounded by guards. Stilson grabs a young child and holds him up as a human shield. A bystander photographer photographs Stilson's act. Unable to shoot a child, Johnny is shot twice by the bodyguards. He falls off the balcony, mortally wounded. Dying, Johnny touches Stilson a final time. He feels only dwindling impressions but knows that the terrible future has been prevented. When published, the picture of Stilson using a child as a shield ends his political career. An, an epilogue interspears accepts of letters from Johnny to his loved ones, a Q&A transcript of the purported Senate committee, chaired by real-life Maine Senator William Cohen, investigation of Johnny's attempt to assassinate Stilson, and a narrative of Sarah's visit to Johnny's grave. Sarah feels a brief moment of psychic contact with Johnny's spirit and comforted. She drives away. Hello, welcome back to the Literary License Podcast, and we're discussing The Dead Zone from 1979, written by Stephen King, and starting with you, Barbara, what's your thoughts of The Dead Zone? Well, there was a lot going on, you know? I mean, I, uh, I, I, I thought it was a little dated, I don't know, I guess because of some of the slang he used and everything, but, um, you know, I liked Johnny and I liked Sarah. The, the religious mother was really just like a paper doll. She just didn't have any personality. She wasn't a, a full-blown character. So she, I found her kind of annoying. <laughs> but, um, I, I mean, we could have seen less of her and still gotten the picture, which is what the, I, they did in the movie. And I, I appreciate it. I live in the Bible Belt. Preach it, lady. Preach yeah, it. But it was just, <laughs> she, was like, she was really a caricature. I mean, she really didn't have anything else besides that religious fervor. And then um, the other, the, I mean, the other thing I, I, I think Greg Stilson was a little too evil. I mean, I just, we, I thought we kind of got hit over the head with his, 
you know, he did this evil thing. He did that evil thing. He did this evil thing. <laughs> like, you know, less might have been more. You know what I mean? But the dog, the dog was my undoing. Dog. I, mean, I don't care if you kill people. <laughs> don't kill the dog. Yeah, don't kill the dog. Right. So <laughs> there was just a lot of, I, I kind of thought, um, you know, um, extraneous gore that just didn't, uh, it didn't really add to it. I mean, I get, you know, it's a horror, it's a horror story and all that, but I didn't think it added to, you know, we got it. He's a bad guy. He does evil things. What, you know, how many times do we have to see him do evil things? But other than that, um, you know, I thought it was, it was cool. Um, it seemed like at some point he could see what was currently happening. Then he could see what was going to happen, you know, so and then he could actually transfer that by touching the person. They could see what he was seeing. So it seemed like the, the power was changing or evolving or something. But, um, you know, I, I thought it's kind of like the Jesus story where he had, you know, he had to sacrifice himself for the greater good. You know, right. I thought it was, you know, it was it was good. It was it's just a little longer than it needed to be. <laughs> and what about yourself, Joe? What are your initial thoughts of the dead zone? Well, um, the Dead Zone, uh, when I, it was kind of in a way my introduction, um, my introduction to David Cronenberg and then I'd seen the movie long before, uh, I read the novel and in, in watching the movie and then reading the novel in the same week, it's, I'm starting to see like a lot of tropes that, that Stephen King uses a lot, um, Like uh, Barbara just mentioned, the super religious mother. Um, um, and uh, as far as the uh, as far as the dog being kicked, I I, uh, I watched an interview with Stephen King uh, yesterday where he was discussing um, he was discussing the dead zone, and he mentioned um, that that is the um, wow. I'm sorry, guys, my my brain's a little fried from all the work I've been doing lately, but. Um, he mentions that that is the point that everybody like brings up to him is like, th- those are all the letters and everything that he's gotten over the years. That's the like crossover point that everyone's like, Oh my God, I can't believe he killed that dog. That's, that's like the moment that like everyone can't believe. Um, it's, it, it is interesting that his stories, they're really uh, like, he's they, got they're, they're really, like themes, small. don't you think? He's he does it a lot. Yeah, he uses a lot of themes over and over. The thing that always stands out to me is how is how his stories are always very small. They're always very, um, like like for stories that are so long, they all take place in the same in the same region, and mm-hmm. it does sort of feel kind of it does it does sort of feel kind of local in a way. And I, I'm not really used to that because I'm used to when I'm reading something I'm, like a lot of times I'm reading something that's like bigger in scope. So it's it's kind it's kind of interesting and kind it, it kind of lulls you in and kind of comforts you at, at some points because um, you kind of get the small town vibe from it. Um, so I yeah, it's Stephen King as your grandfather's in a rocking chair on the porch and he's going to tell you a story. Yeah, yeah I could totally see that. Um, like like I said, this is my first Stephen King novel that I've finished. So like I'm I, I'm getting a lot of like. <laughs> like a lot, a lot of like mixed up stuff because because sometimes I'm 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 reading this and then going back and thinking of some of the movies that I've seen of his work and it all and I'm I, I'm kind of now curious to go read a lot of his other novels to see if they all kind of have these these similar themes that just always seem to permeate through everything. Like he he seems to always have uh, issue with religious Mommy. extremists, mommies, mommy issues. <laughs> <laughs> 
Maybe, maybe mommy issues. I haven't seen that as much. Yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe a, lot I'm, mo- a lot of mothers are either overbearing or they're not existent. He he does seem to have an issue with religious extremists. I, I've seen that in a lot of a yeah. lot of the movies based on his. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely the mother in Carrie. The mother in Carrie and the mother in this, yeah. uh, Greg Stilson's mother, seem really similar. Um, so, so, did, just, so did Johnny's mother. They were all kind of. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. That's but you know, true. it was the murderers, the murderer's mother that that was really oh out there with the, the clothespin and all that other stuff. So there was some bad moms in this. Ouch. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Now that you think of it, yeah. All three, all three I thought the clothespin would pretty... stick in y'all's head, especially the male reader. OK, oh. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I didn't even notice. Some now, people, now some people pay for that privilege, Vicky. What? Some people will pay for that privilege if you know where the right place to go. Ah, that's <laughs> true. There, there's a market for everything. There's a market. Yeah, now that you in this one, uh, the, all the mothers in this one were pretty. Were yeah. Religion. Maybe there, maybe there is something inherent in some kind of mommy issues in Stephen King. Well, we do know that Stephen King's father was absent and he has a very, very close um, relationship with his mother, which which when you see the mothers that he writes about, it's kind of bizarre that they're quite, some of them are quite horrific sort of thing. Like Carrie Fish, but Carrie's mom, Carrie's mom. But considering that he has such love and admiration for his mother and um, and he he had very, very close, very close relationship um, because it was him and his mother and I, and they were like them against the world sort of situation. So it is kind of bizarre that when he writes about mothers that sometimes that this does come through so uh, so they're hoping he's not basing it anything personal so i, I mean i don't know if, it, if he was that close to his mother it might be that he's kind of seeing like where other children strayed is because uh because of that because their mothers weren't as strong as him i don't know i mean this is his mother this is something that yeah <laughs> <laughs> Every boy's best friend is their mother. Well, I mean, you, you got the shine about? too. The mother, well, what was it was it not Shelley Duvall? Well, the, the, the the mother was um, a victim of an abusive relationship, so that's a bit different sort of thing. Yeah. What about the mother on uh, Doctor Sleep? Um, I guess it was Stan's mom or something like that. Um, she was quite bizarre too. Yeah, and if you look at Eddie K- Kubrick's mother in um, the it, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, very overbearing. She kept wanting to put him on medication that he didn't need. <laughs> oh, that's what I meant. That was the it. That's he right. tells him by proxy, sort of thing. Yeah. And what about yourself, Vicky? What are your thoughts about Dead Zone? I loved this book. I hadn't read it before, but I had seen the movie several times back in the day, but I rewatched the movie. I was kind of sad that the movie didn't pick up on certain nuances that the book had, because I think that it, when you leave it out of the, the movie, it kind of leaves some kind of void in there where, well, there's something missing here, but I can't put my finger on it. But I mean, I finally, I was like reading all the research and I go through other people's, you know, uh, they're, they're what they think of certain movies and certain books and whatnot and uh the, the one thing that i didn't see well i did see is that everybody was really I, I the epilogue would have really gone good in the movie i think because the epilogue like i said i finally finished the last chapter before you know we we came on because i fell asleep last night but um the epilogue like was really sad i thought it was like tear-jerkingly sad because i felt really bad for sarah because mm-hmm. they really did care about each other and then you see that 
that uh, theme of the Wheel of Fortune kind of throughout the whole book. It seems like the, the first chapter in the Wheel of Fortune sets it up, you know, because it really is spinning the wheel throughout the whole book. What would you do, you know, if you knew Hitler was going to rise? Would you go back and kill Hitler? Which I think normal people would go back and kill Hitler, you know. So, and then well, he found out he he was done. Even, well, I would. <laughs> with that argument, with the argument about going back, and let's sit there say that you kill Hitler. Huh? If you could, if you could, um, if you did go back and kill Hitler, you would have a different world than what. Well, you, you would. I mean, it it's like mean that it's better or worse. It's just. Gonna well, be yeah, you can't screw with history. I'm imagining because then you're going to set up another chain of events, you know, because that's just the way of the world. But. um I thought it was a really sad story because this guy just all he wanted was happiness and love and family and everything. And, and just because alone. of that one weird, yes, one of those weird, <laughs> he should have just spent the night with her and not gotten the damn cab. It would have <laughs> all been sad. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> just okay, stay, that. go get yourself a piece of tail. Don't get the cab. But no, he had to be all whatever, you know, go on, get the cab. <laughs> That's what happened. I've done that. Then we would have had a nuclear holocaust. (laughs) (laughs) Then we would have had a nuclear holocaust. (laughs) (laughs) That's a bad hot dog. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I I suppose I should probably save this comment for for the movie, but that's that the the movie just kind of just kind of cuts off. Like 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 Vicky said, the epilogue is completely gone. Yeah, I, I wish they would have kept the epilogue in the movie because I thought it was kind of, and I was like, this is really sad. You know, it's like, I was telling the team before y'all got on, I go, the end was sad because I felt bad for him. I really did. It sucked. You know, he just, he really just want, and it, those letters he wrote his father and, and Sarah were just really sad and, and they were heartfelt and stuff because this guy just he knew he was going to die and he knew this guy was going to be the first one to start nuclear annihilation you know and so he goes well I, what else do i got you know i might as well kill him <laughs> you know and then he holds up the baby you know poor martin martin right. sheen that's all i think of when i was reading that was martin sheen holding that baby up <laughs> from the movie you know it's like ah, that right there but it did ruin his career either way so he did achieve his end mm. i love what are your thoughts about dead zone um well i really enjoyed that's why i wanted to read it all um i really well about what what we were chatting about i imagine that um must be some um things that are repeated like the mother you know in, in curry and they're both like um they believe it, like in God, but it's like um, like being, what's the name? Like you know when you're like too much, right? And but at the same time, I think well maybe he's trying in that way to describe uh, how is the, the the people in that place where where the story is happening. You know, I I think that um, there was one part that that um. I think after Johnny was born, the mom wanted to have more kids, but they couldn't. And I think that affected her a lot. That's why then she turned into God. And she was really like, in a way, I think like ignorant because she was, can be treated really easily, you know, like brainwashed. Um, oh God, you don't, I, there, there's, there's people that looked at my Instagram that got really triggered religiously. <laughs> I had to deal with that because it's a joke. People do get us that easy. What, I think what you also need to, I think what you also need to realize also is that whenever any people do two things, whenever, um, tr- um, when they go through a drama or a, a trauma, right. Or, That's true. And they either, 
they do one or two things. They go, um, they go against God or they go 100% towards mm-hmm. God. Um, I get this when I deal with patients in ICU and patients um, who are, you know, I get it when patients are diagnosed with some of the diagnoses that, um, that I see patients for. And the, one or two things happen. They either break away from religion altogether or they encompass religion like 100%. And the, the thing about, you know, it's a bit like um, there's a classic saying that the, the, as far as society is concerned, that it's better to have an ideology than a belief because it's mm-hmm. easier to change someone's ideology than it is to change someone's belief system. But don't you it think is- her religious fervor had a certain place in the novel because she kept telling him that God had a purpose for him? Maybe that purpose was to see this still for what he was mm-hmm. and to take him out so that there wouldn't be a nuclear war, you know? Well, yeah. the thing, another, I mean, the thing about this also is it is, is that how much of this is destiny and how much of it is man's will. And that's pretty right. much what the dead zone is pretty much revol- revolves around. Yeah. And also uh, his mom said like kind of not to run away from that kind of gift that he had. Um, I really liked it was like uh, to me when I was reading it, like a big question about like if, like for example, what would have happened if if he wouldn't have had the accident or if, uh, several things. And I really like when he said to her, well, we made, we made what, what the best what we could. And that's um, like what they did, what they could with what would happen and the, the choice that they can make. Um, when I reached the third part, um, for me, it was a bit too much, you know, like a bit tedious. It was explaining all that thing about politics. I think it was too he too much in the, detail. Yeah, they spent a lot of time on on that, but I think it had. Yeah. I think it just showed Johnny's interest, why he got interested in politics, and I think yes. he was just going out and meeting politicians for shits and giggles, wasn't he? <laughs> well, I, I also yeah, but I also have to think that you also have to look at the time that this is written as well, and at, at that time, um, the seventies, right, yeah, seventies, right, yes. and we're coming out of the Vietnam War. Um, Politics, Nixon had to resign. Nixon. Um, then yeah. we had you know, Carter and Ford and all that kind of stuff. We had the energy crisis of seven, in 74 as well. And so this book is a big mirror up at that time sort of thing. And it, mm-hmm. it got to the point where in America for the first time, um, well, not for the first time, but it was that big that we were getting these third party candidates coming forward who were kind of coming like, not from the family of politics that we were we were experiencing, but pol- politicians who are coming out from the grass level roots, and yeah. that, I think that's what the dead zone is kind of exploring those at the moment. Of course, we'd see this a lot more in the eighties, nineties, and so on and so forth. But the time this was written, this was kind of a a new thing for American politics. And what he said yeah. about the main um, the the main governor at the time, yeah, he was from a third party, so this was. This was also going on. So I think Dead Zone is a reflection of the politics that were changing at that time. The Dead Zone is supposed to be that part in his head that doesn't work anymore. Right. And then the brain supposedly just wraps around it and finds other ways. But that was back then when they said we only use 10 percent of our brain. Right. But yeah. I think that we don't we, we don't think that anymore, do we? Well, there's one part that he called it. He explained that it's like the I've been on social media a lot less. <laughs> <laughs> Just wondering. The next song in his head was that damage that he had the first time when he hit the ice um, when he was a kid, 
and I think that that was the 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 main. Well, he explained that. I really like the part the the part of when he started to mix letters and what the the people were saying in, in like in between. Uh, no, I really enjoyed, it. and I, I have um, kind of like a self meter about books and movies. Even make me cry is good because <laughs> to me it means like it touched in some way. And no, I, I really, really, really enjoyed. I thought the end was sad. The epilogue, I did. It was sad. I mean, I was really like choking up reading it. I was really not expecting that. As I was telling Keith, I go, I was reading the end of the book and I started crying. It's just like, it was sad. <laughs> what about yourself, Craig? What's your thoughts on Dead Zone? Um, what, what, I agree with what you guys said about the um, overbearing mother, but I've always found in Stephen King that he's there's always like an issue, like daddy issues. Um, but now it makes sense when you said... Mm. Um, about his father uh, not yeah, being. Yeah, that's true. Because straight away, I think of um, the 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 scary father in Creep Show at the beginning with the <laughs> who finds the comics in the trash can. Oh, I know. He's a oh, was know. it Atkins? What's his name? Atkins. Yeah, Tom Atkins. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then obviously you've got um, the guy in The Shining and um, uh, the other. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, that's true. I, I, his daddy I, issues. <laughs> Um, it was. I thought it was in a really evocative book. Um, quite nostalgic as well. Um, the the Hitler scene was probably one of my favourite <laughs> um, parts. Um, it really got me, got my mind thinking. Like, and I was like questioning, what would I, what would you do in what that situation? You, mean, yeah. you know, it's it's yeah. really clever. Um, when he says Hitler, um, what about Hitler? Well, suppose just. Suppose suppose you could hop into a time machine and go back to the year 1932 in Germany and suppose you came across Hitler would you kill him or would you let him live but well, you, you know like I Charlie was... Chaplin at the time you know so you probably wouldn't you know right so um but the, with the movie I like the sense the foreboding the threat and the the vulnerability that um was was created because you knew something was coming and something was going to happen mm. um and it really set the tone um for for the for the for the book and um obviously in the film it was reflected in the film but i think in the film things happen very quickly sort of thing so it was nice to have like the build up in in the chapters um in the, in in the book um that may have been lost in the movie slightly um but yeah just even the vulnerability the feeling that this guy he's he's gonna have he had this accident and he you can see him being re- rehabilitated for example and you get that in misery you know when um yeah <laughs> the poor guy he's that rest- poor guy there's just no there's, that guy was just screwed from the get-go <laughs> here's a nice typewriter for you to have a yeah. oh, yeah. after, after i hobble you and, and break your ankles and whatnot um <laughs> Misery is such a perfect title for that book. Oh, it really yeah. is. Yeah, loved it, really. Um, and it's the first time I've seen, read this one. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think, um, like I say, with, with the book, I, th- I, mean, I read, I think when my dad had you nearly know, all the Stephen King and he was a big, big fan of like a lot of sort of horror and um, you know, esoteric stuff. He liked uh, uh, Lovecraft and people like this. You know, the old man was quite a quite an interest, 
you know, literary guy, you know, very, it's funny, it's funny guys are talking like I was thinking, you have to transcend your parents because, you know, I, I don't do anything that my parents do. You know, I'm a musician and I'm a builder, you know, and they won't, do, they never did anything like that. So it's great. And I think it's like, I think you make a choice really early on. And with this Johnny character was like, he seemed to be like, like, um, like Vicky was saying, he was caught in this, um, someone said he wanted to please everyone, you know. I got that feeling from him, like he wanted to please his parents, you know, mm. but he couldn't do that. But, uh, and also there, there was a reference to uh, Edgar Allan Poe, you know. Um, mm. um, was it Nevermore, Keith? Because you, you, you might be more of a. It was the Raven. from The Raven, wasn't it? From The Raven. Oh, gosh, okay, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm thinking about it, there was a, an old um, Hammer horror, I think it was Vincent Price. Yeah. Uh, you know, oh, genius. <laughs> Very Car- much so. You know, <laughs> like Boris Karloff, you know, and, uh, and the, so beautiful. The- Leonora was one of the, the girls. I think that was his wife. I'm getting off the track now, like, but uh, that's all right. Yeah, we do that all the time. Because <laughs> in, in the TV series Castle Rock, the ravens yeah. keep falling out of the sky as well. Uh, so I don't know if that's, oh, that's a reference. That's the, I'm not sure, but that's interesting. Um, but that's it's a bit great. like Midsummer Murders, really. Because I said to <laughs> I said to David, like, <laughs> the, the death count is pretty high in yeah. Castle. You want to watch Midsummer Murders? There can't be anybody left in the village. Yeah. Gotta, gotta keep a gotta keep a watch on that death count. You know, it's really interesting. When I was in university, you know, I was I was studying. Well, one of the sub- subjects was um, history of the world, and we were talking about the Second World War, and, and I couldn't understand. I actually asked the professor. How how that happened that Hitler got to power because I didn't know um, have a vague idea but not really and then he then she said something really interesting she said look you have to understand that that thing happened that he was able to get in power because all the society was pushing to kind of like explode to someone go there and, and like kind of. Um, Basically, there were all revolutions in other countries around Germany, right? And she said, look, it was going to happen. Maybe it wasn't Hitler was going to be another another person, another party, but the thing was going to explode because it was it was too much tension going on. And he, I think kind of he saw the opportunity to install all his um, ideas, right? And I don't know, it was really interesting. And also in the book, he said, well, yes, I will go and kill Hitler if, if I if I know that then I can come back to the present because right. if, if he would have stayed there, someone from the party maybe if he would have killed that person and someone else would have uh, take the the place. It's kind of like a hydra, um, basically. If you cut yeah. the head of the hydra, you not, cut the head sometimes off. you get two to replace it, and sometimes you're better off with the one evil person and two right. evil people. Mm. But yeah. I mean, well, they had, Germany was really <laughs> mad at the time, though, because they had disbanded all their military. And they the whole world was going through an economic depression as well. Yeah. Germany was going through an economic depression. Unfortunately, Hitler got them out of the economic depression at that time. Hitler was also a very good speaker. He's a magical Very good speaker. He told everybody... Uh, basically, what they needed or wanted to hear. Bonded is probably better. Uh, after World War One, <laughs> after World War One, Germany had uh, surrendered. They had uh, signed down their military to yeah, the they Allies. Were mad. Yes. <laughs> However, <laughs> you know they were going through a depression, and when uh, 
Hitler wrote the book, My Kampf it was my struggle when he was in prison as a uh, World War One. Um, <clears throat> he wrote that book and it basically was uh, what people of Germany wanted to hear. And that's how he started to come into power. Yes. He was a very good speaker. Very That's the thing. If you could start scapegoating people and start telling people that their problems are not because of anything they did, but they the problems did, of yeah. the outside group, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. yeah, you're going to be able to you're going to be able to attain power that way. And Hitler saw that. Yeah, he did. Isn't that what politics is? Doesn't politics always bring one set of people down to bring other people up? Yeah. And yes. whether you're looking at politics today, um, you know, it doesn't matter what country you're in. You know, it's like, it seems you know, to be a game. and it's always, a, and, it, and I'm pro- unfortunately when it comes to society, the one thing that the, the, the one thing that humans have actually ruined the human race forevermore and they'll never get over that is their ego. So basically what you do is you have to keep rebuilding your ego and how to rebuild your ego by putting something else down and you make something mm. else. Ego. And we see it today in victimhood in the victimhood culture that we're in. Basically mm. everyone's a victim, but the thing is, you have to take some responsibility for the decisions that you make. If you do not sure. take responsibility, you know, same thing like, okay, if you go to, you know, if you decide to take a shortcut in a dark park and you get mugged, now you should not, in a brilliant society, you should not get mugged, okay? But at the same time, you get mugged, you have to take some responsibility for making that decision. I'm not saying you have to take all responsibility, but you have to take a little bit of responsibility for the decision. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yep. If you don't blame everything else around you for the bad decision making that you make then what happens is, is that you look for scapegoats to sit there and not take responsibility it wasn't my fault he did it he made me do it <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, should, we should all go into our child ego and then just blame our parents no no yeah. Oh, yeah. that's my kind you know what i heard it, from, i heard a joke that said uh freud said if it's not one thing it's your mother <laughs> yeah there you go words to live by <laughs> and that can link right back to the dungeon <laughs> david no? likes it anyway <laughs> sure. what about yourself jim what are your thoughts about dead zone um, well, um, we were just kind of a brushing cross to it. Um, one thing I like the dead zone, it was long. Um, I, I did not like the breaks with the, the chapter with the laughing tiger, um, the way he brought that in there. Cause it, it really hits you head on with a lot of politics there. He did. And, uh, with, uh, Stephen King, I follow him on Twitter, um, on my Twitter page. I have a Facebook page for my books as well, but, uh, I follow Stephen King on uh, Twitter and with this last election that we had here in the United States, he every day had posted some sort of uh, political um, outbursts, his thoughts and things like that. And I could see he's always been like that with reading the stand that was written in 1983. You could with this uh, Greg Stilson, you could see how Stephen King, um, he, does not trust government <laughs> and uh, I, a there's always a conspiracy. Anymore. Yeah. There seems to be always a conspiracy with government. Uh, obviously for a long time, he has not trust government. So I don't know if any of you follow him on uh, Twitter now, but uh, um, if you do, you can see that uh, he constantly has uh, comments about politics. Well, a lot of them do. Twitter is not for the faint of heart. I only stick to podcast stuff on Twitter. 
I yeah. don't delve in, in the realm of politics on Twitter because you're going to get eviscerated one way or the other. Yes. <laughs> Just yes. stay out of it. Stay out of the fray. But he's, well, he's, a lot of them are like that, though. But I mean, yeah, they got a platform. You know, they want to voice their opinion. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, uh-huh. you can see that he has voiced his opinion in. Uh, um, well, he's a hippie as well. He's got a good sense of humor because um, he, he clicked. <laughs> He clicked like on one of my pictures of a little pug dog with a yellow oh. rain jacket coming what out of a drain. What was it? With a cell phone. It was great. From yeah. it. From it. It's a little, it's pug, a dog little pug dog with a hoodie on. Oh, really? I got to follow you on Twitter, I guess. <laughs> I, like, I like what Craig had to say earlier. With um, uh, You form your own opinion of all the characters in the book in your own mind. And, right. Uh, and visualize uh, the scenarios that are happening in the story. Um, it's just so disappointing that when I read the book, this comes true to the fact that most people say, read the book first before you see the movie. Movie, absolutely. <laughs> because uh, this is a classic example. This dead zone is a classic example of that because there was a lot of story in there that was not in the movie. Totally lost in the shuffle. Yeah. Totally. Right. I mean, it would have made more sense had he had the brain tumor probably in the movie. Yeah. I mean, I think I mean, I think what you have to look at the dead zone basically is that, first of all, there is a trope that Stephen King hasn't added to this. No one's a writer. Because <laughs> normally, normally, <laughs> not a writer, no matter what, or Salem's Lot, or so right. on and so forth, a writer, sort of thing. Um, but I, I, think an, I think what makes the dead zone kind of an odd novel, especially the first, you know, if you look at what he wrote before this, this is his seventh novel, it's the first one to hit the top 10. But um, but there are like shades of Carrie and along the way the Carrie's written basically with your interviews and your newspaper articles and stuff like that. So we got that framework going on here. But Dead Zone is probably more of an episodic adventure sort of thing. So basically, we got Johnny Smith, the early years. Johnny Smith, the I'm gonna I'm gonna lose my virginity to this girl here. We're gonna go to the fair and basically, and we're gonna have and we're gonna do a little foreshadowing here with the wheel. Right. And the, the the mask that scares her, which is the two face mask, which right. brings to Johnny later in. Then we got the coma years, and then after the coma years, then we got Johnny putting his life back together again, sort of thing with you know with, with the supernatural popped in there with his new, he, you know, with his heightened. He had he already had the being able to see the future anyway, but this is basically now it's heightened now because of the. This, the second accident he had. So then we kind of have those years. Meanwhile, we kind of got the Stilson story popping in here, sort of thing. And the Sarah storyline is kind of an odd thing because there's a longing there for him. But to be honest, and though, and though in the book it might seem sad that, you know, this could be the, you know, Sarah, this could be the life that could be. But you also have to remember that at the beginning of the novel when Sarah's medium, they just started dating. They haven't yeah. been dating for long. And basically she's had an abusive relationship. And, and then, while she'd broken off with this one, she kind of dated this person. And, you know, she wasn't a virgin sort of thing, but she basically, you know, was kind of didn't trust men very much sort of thing. So then she meets right. Johnny and she's like, well, maybe I'm going to get let Johnny have have a, a bit of sex sort of thing and see where this goes. And then, of course, the accident happens. So basically, for Sarah's character, you're never quite sure. Is this is Johnny the love of her life? We don't know. It sounds like she got well, it, it seems like, it's, like it throughout the novel, don't you think? Not, not really, like, because if you, place, if you place it in realistic yeah, sort of thing, Sarah, Johnny is what could have been, 
But then she gets married and then she finds herself in domestic ho-hum sort of thing. Basically, she's no longer teaching. She's raising kids. She's a housewife now. So Johnny could be like, you know, this is this is the when your life becomes normal and this is your normalcy sort of thing. And, you know, you settle down into domestic, whatever domestic this is. This is the one that may have got away and what could have been. Doesn't necessarily mean this is the love of your life as far as Sarah is concerned. Johnny felt deeper for Sarah anyway. So you get that Johnny's love for Sarah is a lot deeper because you have to remember that Johnny's missing four and a half years of his life. So when he wakes up, those four it's and like yesterday for him. Yeah. It's, Rip Van, it's the Rip Van Winkle effect, basically. Yeah. Sort of. <laughs> that was a great. So, so we kind of get, so we do, we kind of get that thing. And then we get, you know, and then we kind of get, you know, he, you know, the parent situation, whether he should um, accept this is a tool of God, a God, is this his destiny, or does he want to be something else? And we get that kind of sex in the mail. Meanwhile, we get this, the political thing underscoring it. Then we get, of course, Castle Rock, which brings them, you know, brings them back to the media forum sort of thing because he kept finds the killer. And then we got him dealing with that side of it and then trying to go for a lower life sort of thing. And then, of course, it ends with basically with the politicians and the world colliding with each other. And basically, he decides he's going to make a stand. Now, the question that you have to ask in Dead Zone was, is Johnny a messiah figure? Is that the case? If he's the Messiah, like Jesus Christ is considered the Messiah, so therefore he has to die on the cross in order to make the world a better place and God can forgive everyone, because before that, God was kind. God hated everyone if you were against him, he's pissed off. Then in the New Testament, God's like, oh, I'll forgive everyone. So you have this Messiah thing going on for Johnny. <laughs> so basically, he decides that Johnny the Messiah, so is this his destiny, and basically yeah. this is the road he's been on since birth. Or are these conscious decisions that Johnny's making to make the world a better place to become a, a martyr? So is Johnny is now a messiah character built from God, or is he a martyr? And that's pretty much what the dead zone pretty much asks itself all the way through. Now the question basically is if he's a mar- if he's a martyr situation, then basically he was put on this world basically to make decisions and he decided to sacrifice himself to make a better world. But if he is destiny and he is from God and his is God's will. And he basically had no control of his destiny. The shooting of Stilson means that that would have happened anyway. And Johnny's the tool of making the world a better place. Calvinism. Calvinism. What have anybody seen? seen Pretty much asked all the way through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's Calvinism where you don't have a choice. It's predestination. But the one I forgot to mention, which is in the book and the movie is when his mom, right before she dies, is because she was watching him on TV and he feels responsible for her death. And right. that is why he feels like, I mean, he's not religious at all. He just feels like um, he has to do what his mom asked him to do. Cause it was her dying wish. Mm. I think that, that they saved that in, into the movie that was in the book. And so I think that's a real big factor because he's not really the self-sacrificing type. <laughs> he doesn't appeal appear to be, does he? No. He, he's, he's not the kind of person who gets involved. He's he's a he's a watcher from from the distance. He watches, observes. He doesn't get involved. And the problematic thing about Johnny is that when he does get involved, he can't deal with the fact that he got involved. You know, when he you know when it comes down to the the prom fire situation, it's another prom fire. Right. <laughs> another prom fire happens, and he's not happy with that. So he goes off. He goes. He moves away, and basically, right. when he helps the nurse um, save her family, the burning house again, he breaks down, pulls away, but it keeps bringing him back, no matter what 
happens. He's being drawn back. Well, to it's this, burdensome this, for this. him, I believe. He doesn't want the burden of this sight thing that he has. Is it the burden or the responsibility? Oh. Both. Both. Well, yes, it is like the first to him, you know, but I mean, it's like, that's like being an empath, isn't it? You know, really, I guess, of the first stages of empathy. <laughs> well, yeah. Like, but I mean, uh, no, well, it's, uh, it's like, he, he always have the, that power. I mean, the thing is like, because he got that accident and then, then when he woke up, he realized that she made her, she carried on with her life. I, I saw it like, well, he, he have to do something with his life. And if for, the, for a moment, he, he didn't, he didn't want to use his power. He didn't want to help anyone. But then he started, I think he started to realize that if he was not going, going to do anything, people were going to uh, die. And he, he was able to see what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And there was a part that he was saying that if he would have gone and let the people in the party uh, know that there was going to be a fire, he could have saved them. And then kind of he started to kind of think one way and the other. And then he said, well, I couldn't have saved them all. Probably I, I saved the, the people who saved all the people who wanted to be saved, let's say. And this is like what, what Keith is saying about the responsibility. You know I mean, you can't save someone that doesn't want to be saved, no matter what you want you want to do well the, the whole book's based about around religion you have the religion of johnny's mother's religious politics is a religion yeah. politics and religion no matter what side of the fence you're, right. you're waiting yourself mm-hmm. in but people like a religion are very very passionate and you're never going to change a person's mind whatever their political standings are whatever anyone's religious standings are and they got strong beliefs in that religious standing you're not going to change their mind mm-hmm. so basically everything's about it's basically still based around religions, basically. So you got that plays on beliefs when um, with the kid and the ice rink, um, right? When yeah. he's and the, the the son is scared and doesn't because he believes that that will happen, but yes. the father's like, "Oh no, that's not going to happen. Crazy, I'm going to take yeah. you to the game, sort of thing." Yeah, don't be so a soft. It's like a play on beliefs, yeah. and yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, beliefs are just, just what somebody well, taught you. Book, in the book, in the, and also you got to remember that John the. The, the crash of the cab in the book, that wasn't the first time he saw the guy who bumped into him and the ice when he was a little boy. He sits there and said that basically, beware of the black ice, beware of the black ice. Um, mm-hmm. Face is melting sort of thing. And basically that's what happens. Right. So he does have this gift before that hand. And then mm-hmm. what we also get is Johnny using this gift. And what's the, what's the evil thing? Of, what's the root of all evil for money purposes? Mm-hmm. So we got Johnny using using his gift as a wheel of fortune to basically get money, use the money sort of thing, which is the prime of all evil sort of thing. So therefore, Johnny's committed a sin. So therefore, gets there, comes back, and then he has to pay back for the sin. So, and you have to remember that I don't, I'm not sh- quite sure what Stephen King's religious um, background is, but there's always a religion that pa- plays through it. The stand we have Randall Flag. Right. Randall Flagging is pretty much Greg Stilson sort of thing. Right. You also have um, the religion of you know, and you also always have the the godlike figure or the good people sort of thing, which in the stand the good people all settle in Boulder, and we have you know Mama Abigail there, and she's the good you know the religious symbol, and then we have the evil stuff going into the Sin City, which is Vegas sort of thing, and you know if we have in the stand, <laughs> we have that in Carrie as well. We have the good girl in Carrie. Who is the one who survives? Susan Snell survives and carries. She's the good one, always trying to do good. 
And then mm. Carrie is basically a person who's caught caught between destiny and also caught between uh, what she is, and then the religious mother, and then the high school sort of, and society, religion and society. She's caught between these two things. We get the same thing at um, Salem's Lot, where basically we got Father Callahan coming forward, sort of thing. So the religious thing in Stephen King's novels are are no, uh, quite the norm at the moment. I haven't read his new stuff at all. I've kind of dropped off. I did read Doctor Sleep, but I haven't read this stuff for a good fifteen to twenty years. Kind of you know left them by the wide side but his early works all have this stuff even the shining there is a bit mm-hmm. of good versus evil and right yeah yes. and this is what makes stephen king he has a lot of nods to his other books and stuff like carrie and the shining and what was the other one cujo i think or cujo well, makes no actually cujo makes a nod to this but you also have to remember with Stephen King as well that after the dead zone, he became an alcoholic. So a lot of those books, Cujo, Christine, and so forth, he doesn't remember writing them. He <laughs> 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 oh, must have missed that interview. He doesn't remember writing. Yeah, yeah so. he did have a bad problem. He, he had a bad problem. It, uh, yeah. it was... It was alcohol and prescription drugs, I believe, was there. So a lot of these books after um, Dead Zone is what will start. This is what's going to make Stephen King. This is what's making his name. And this is what makes him the, the Stephen King we know today. This is the, the crime. Then by by the time it comes from, he is the number one horror writer of all time. He's written and probably the number one author of all time. He's probably sold more books. I think he sold more books than Gone with the Wind at this time. And he's almost right. he's at, now we got someone who's actually sold more books than the Bible has. That's this is the <laughs> we today. At this time, he was growing up, and then he, you know, we do have the years where he doesn't remember writing. Yeah. That's incredible. Mm. It is. You can't remember it. He's doing an Agatha Christie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then we get life back together again, and then what we got to is, you know, he's writing, and then we get, he gets hit by a, a truck, and we get to Stephen right. King for years, where every book is has a really bitter, horrible nastiness to it. Books wow. like L and things like that come through. So Which book King. was that, Keith? L. Um, the, bo- the books that he came out with after he was hit by a car, they got bitter. Now what's happened is he's he's kind of gotten over that. Now right. we've got the new search of King, which is not really horror anymore. we got King, the mystery thriller writer now. Mm-hmm. Right. And Owen, Owen King's doing... Well, help. The Dead Zone really isn't a horror story. It's yeah. kind of a sci-fi thriller, don't you think? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. There's yeah. a lot of this stuff that I see doesn't really fall into the horror realm anymore. I mean, this is his, um, this is his every man with us, um, supernatural. <laughs> and we, you know, this is, you know, there, there, there are films that, I mean, there are films, there are books of his that kind of follow this. We have Carrie, which is, you know, small town girl with special gift. We have Firestarter, you know, runaway, um, small town girl with a fire starter gift. We got the dead zone, small town boy. And then we also get other characters within his books that basically do have some kind of sixth sense or something like that, that does weave its way through a lot of his books. So the question basically is, with The Dead Zone, would you recommend this to read to anyone? Starting with you, Craig, would you recommend this book to anyone? Uh, yeah, it was enjoyable read, so I'd recommend it. Yeah. What about yourself, David? 
Yeah, definitely. Just anybody reading anything at the moment is great. Physically reading a book. Yes. It's one of the greatest things on the tube. You get on and you see somebody reading a book, you know, I just think this is fab because yeah. most people have just got their faces and the piece of plastic and that's it, you know. <laughs> you know, because like you, you know, sorry. I was like, Jim, would you make this a recommended read? Yes, I would have make it a recommended read. Um, basically because uh, there's so much detail into the book. Um, there's more of the story into the book. You know, it's like uh, a lot of his movies, um, the way he wrote uh, um, The Shining, he um, wasn't happy with the way the movie was portrayed out uh, about his father, um, was actually an uh, alcoholic. And uh, he didn't like the way they made the father in the book of the shining to make it, it seem that way as well. That there was a couple things he didn't like about how the book was turned over to film in a lot of his uh, novels, but this one here um, with all the detail, there's a lot more than just one story going on at one time in here. Um, and yeah, I recommend it as a good read for anybody. Uh, like I said, it was one of my first reads of Stephen King's. Um, yeah, it's more like a sci-fi, not like a horror, like, uh, um, oh, the werewolf, uh, what's the silver, silver bullet? bullet? Yeah, silver bullet. Uh, um, I liked Cat's Eye. Um, I liked all, uh, a lot of Stephen King, uh, books, but, uh, this one here was, it was long, like I said, and it was full of a lot of detail. I mean, a lot of stories were going on at once. He does like his detail, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. <laughs> um, yeah, he, he likes it. Um. Uh, like, you know, with the uh, Stilson's bodyguards, they were a motorcycle gang in the book, but in the movie, right. they look like mobsters from New York City. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there were so much differences in, in this. Uh, of course, he wasn't moving a, making a movie, so his extras needed a job, and David Cronenberg hired them. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so um, you know, and, and I got, you know, basically the same thing with uh, Appalachian. I wrote the book. I was told that it was too long to fit into a two-hour segment for a film. So I had my ghostwriter write um, um, a cut-down version, which they had to cut out some of the chapters to fit it into a two-hour <laughs> film. But then I said, what about a miniseries? I want you to write the whole thing out exactly the way I want. That way, in case someone wants to pick it up as a miniseries, nothing's cut out it's the way i wanted it so it all matters yes stick to your guns well i try <laughs> <laughs> what about yourself leandro what are your thoughts about would you recommend dead zone as a book to read yeah definitely but this is the third book that i read uh from stephen king the second one was eat and i enjoyed this one i really i really recommended it to someone that um if someone wants just to start to read it you know, and then has never read Stephen King before. I definitely, I would recommend this one just to start. Uh, I really enjoyed, you know, um, how he writes and explains on with details the places, the situations that you can picture in your in your mind. Um, and yeah, definitely, I would recommend it. Yeah, I agree. I agree with Leonardo on that. Um, when I was reading the novel itself, I mean, I was young, very young. I was in grade school when this, uh, at the time this novel was written. And as Stephen King wrote in history about Ford and all, uh, yeah. with uh, the, Har- oh, the Hell's Angels at uh, the Jagger concert. Um, yeah. 
the Rolling Stone concert. Um, I mean, that all brought back memory for me. Like, uh, yeah, I remember when that happened. I remember Reagan. I remember Ford. I remember Jimmy Carter coming. Yeah. So it was, that's what I liked about the book. Like what Leonardo just said, a lot of history written in it. Yeah. What about yourself, Barbara? Would you recommend the dead zone? I'm always an outlier. I have to say, (laughs) um, first of all, my attention span has gotten shorter and shorter every year. I don't know why. And, I just found there was too much detail. There was too many, like I said, you know, okay, Stilson's evil. How many times do you have to show us he's evil? I mean, how many times do you have to show us the mom is a religious nut? It was just like too much for me. I mean, I, I would still recommend it, but I, I found it was a little long, a little um, all over the place and a little bit too much detail. I just didn't really want to, I just didn't need, you know, I, I felt like, okay, I get it. You know, it's like, okay, let's go. So, um, I don't know. Um, it, 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 it wasn't my favorite Stephen King book. I don't think it's just too long for me. And what about yourself, Vix? What are your thoughts? Would you recommend? I'm trying to to think of a Stephen King book that isn't got too much detail or isn't too long most of the time besides thinner or another one. I can't remember it right off. They have all these really, really. Dolores Dolores Claiborne was pretty long too, I think. I think all his books are really big. uh, Like it is huge. It's like a Bible. Yeah. Well, I did, I, I did read it too. Um, you can I don't know. There's sort of like challenges. Yeah. State building, you can kill someone with it. Did yeah, anyone- <laughs> true. You can definitely hurt somebody with a stand. But but now I actually thought this book was really good. I mean, I I liked how he gets into the heads of the the killer. You know, where because when he's making that transaction between psychic from the other person like the the Leonard Nimoy mind meld or whatever it is he's doing with them you know you're getting flashes like I mean like the the serial killer that was pretty gruesome you know nine-year-old kid you know and they don't spare you too much detail on them for the most part and it's like who doesn't like who wouldn't grimace at something like that that's cringeworthy completely but I like how he gets into people's heads sort of like Cujo the book I mean that that gets into the dog's head which the film never does but I mean, it's just vintage Stephen King. Lots of detail all over the place. What about yourself, Joe? Would you recommend this book? Uh, I definitely would. Um, it's because I I, I I like the detail. I like all the detail in it. Um, the only the only issue that I have with it is, like you said, it is episodic, and it's it's a style of writing that I'm generally not drawn to. Is when like you have all these little mini stories in it. Cause I kind of like the idea of having like a through line of, um, of the story, which I guess in this case would just be. Continuity with, with maybe. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's actually, it, it's the same point I'm, I'm about to get into when we discuss the movie too, because um, like, it just felt like there's like, like there's different beginnings, middles and endings throughout. And that's, um, it's not a style that's appealing to me. Um, if like, if we're going to do a comparison, I think the novel does it better, which I guess is generally going to be the case. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I, I just, I guess I just prefer my stories to be like just one long coherent, uh, narrative and all these little bits just kind of, uh, just kind of come in and uh, I don't know. Uh, so mm-hmm. would I, would I recommend it? Definitely. Um, it just because it's not my style uh, or my preferred style doesn't mean that it's it's not something that's uh, right. that's good and enjoyable. I think it's very enjoyable. Um, there there are points like Barbara said where maybe it felt like 
there there was a little beating over the head like okay how many how many times can you tell me this person's evil um and that but that being said there there were a lot of moments that were missing from the movie which we'll we'll get to in a minute that that I think would have improved the movie yeah well i, I think it's really interesting what you said because it's like <laughs> I, I, when i was reading i said oh, i was confused because okay wait one chapter is one one person one story then jumps to another one and say well, okay but this is not related and then I said, well, let's carry on reading and then is i like how he because there were different things that maybe were happening at the same time and how he <laughs> then connected all at the end i think it was really really clever to you know now as far as um the dead zone i enjoy the dead zone i think it's a good book um it does it stand up to my favorites which happen to be carrie salem's lot the shining uh, i love the golden age of stephen king that's my you know highlight of stephen king what i have to sit there and say about the dead zone the dead zone is probably his first book that deals with a long time span sort of thing Normally what he writes about all takes place in a very short time period, whether it's Carrie, Carrie takes place over a couple months. The stand takes place over six months sort of thing, but they're dealing with so many different characters, so many moving parts there that, you know, well, by the time everything comes together, you're kind of moved from one story to the next as it carries on, which he would use again in it. Um, and, but, you know, if you like Cujo, Cujo takes place over a weekend sort of thing. And I, I think the dead zone is probably his first novel that he actually carries over a larger time th- time frame sort of thing FaceTime and i think that's probably the reason why it's episodic um i think that there are other authors that kind of were able to do that and blend that a little bit better john irving writes you know writes keeps all his stuff pretty much suited in the same area sort of thing but he's writes long time frames but he has this really weird way of like blending going back and forth while you're going through this person's life the whole time you're in the present you're going to the past you're in the middle where I think that the reason why it's episodic is that basically you come in at Johnny and basically you're, you're just trading, you're watching Johnny and you're going through the years. And if you look at your, your life yourself, your life is nothing but a series of episodes anyway. That's true. So, yeah. um, I guess that's probably why it feels episodic, but I would recommend The Dead Zone. I'm not sure if it would be the first book I would say. My first book, if you want to get into Stephen King, would probably be um, Salem's Lot for me. I think that's yeah. the first book I would say. Salem's Lot was an easy read. It really, yeah. For Stephen King, it was. Yeah. And, you know, but I do think that Dead Zone is very, very important um, for a book. You know, almost, I guess up there with like Catch of the Rye or something like that. And the reason why I say that, because it is a, a book about an era in American history that was going on at the time that was going on sort of thing. And it's a good reflection of that time. And I remember growing up during that time, I remember the peanut farmer president and the, you know, the health crisis and the Nixon and, you know, and all that stuff going on. And I remember all that. So it's kind of nice that when I'm reading it, I have something to refer yeah. back to. So that's why I like this. Now, if you're a new reader or a young reader, It'd yeah. be quite interesting to think about it, all these political references and these things that are going on in American history at that, that point in time. Um, what you know? Might are not, they able to understand? Everything might not resonate history? really well. No. Yeah, because he doesn't give a lot of explanation why this stuff is happening. So you don't get the backstory story. But if you were there, you know, you kind of know this automatically, sort of thing, because you're living it. You lived it, sort of thing. <laughs>
So that brings us to The Dead Zone, the film, which is a 1983 American science fiction thriller film directed by David Cronenberg. The screenplay by Jeffrey Boehm is based on the 1979 novel The Same Name by Stephen King. The film stars Christopher Walken, Brooke Adams, Tom Skerritt, Herbert Lom, Martin Sheen, Anthony Zerb, and Colleen Dewhurst. Um, in the novel, the phase Dead Zone refers to the part of Johnny Smith's brain that is irreplaceably damaged, as we discussed. And basically, the film would do very, very well. But the main adaption, if you want to see the main adaption for the Dead Zone, the book, you should watch the two-hour adaption that was made into a TV series starring Anthony Michael Hall. So what we're going to do is cut to the trailer of the Dead Zone, and we'll be right back. You've been in a coma, Johnny. For how long? Five years. The house is burning. Your daughter's in the house. It's not too late. You're the talk of the town. Because I got my head bashed in and I'm still here to talk about it. Because you have the power of second sight. I don't know whether it's true or not. These psychic powers of yours. I'm at my wit's end, John. I could use your help. It has to do with these murders we've been having. Castle Rock Killer. I saw his face. Just thought I'd stop by here on my way to the U.S. Senate. Greg Stilson. He's dangerous. If you could go back in time before Hitler came to power, knowing what you know now, would you kill him? I would kill him. You'd never get away alive. It doesn't matter. I'm not crazy, you know. Those headaches are getting worse, aren't they? As the visions grow stronger and more powerful, so the body weakens. God has seen fit to bless you with this gift. You should use it. Bless me! Not only can you see the future, I can change it. Hello, welcome back to Literary License Podcast. We're discussing The Dead Zone, the 1983 film. And starting with you, Jim, what are your thoughts on the film, The Dead Zone? Um, I like the film. Um, uh, reading the book, though, um, I, I like the... When they're at the, uh, the amusement park, there's really... You don't see nobody there but the guy who's attending the roller coaster. Right. Um, so it, they're on the roller coaster by themselves in the front and uh, he had comes up with one of the headaches and uh, they uh, did not have the wheel of fortune uh, in the beginning of that, that started it all. Um, I like, I did like the film and I probably would have liked it a lot more if I didn't read the book first. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> but for example, yeah. the accident when he's in the, in, in the novel, he's uh, in the, the taxi talking to a taxi driver sitting in the front seat and he flies through the front of the windshield. I thought that would have been more of a portrayal of uh, how he got the head injury than crashing into a milk truck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and sliding it's, and it's sliding down the road. And his BW um, beetle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. His little beetle. That would have crushed yeah. that little beetle. <laughs> I know. It's like, that would have been toast really. Well, yeah, Colin coach the Beatles, you know. I mean, just a digression. I lived on. I grew up on a farm, and we had a 
Um, and we had a great big St. Bernard dog. Um, uh-huh. And it got hit by a... Uh, both like and died. We'd like... <laughs> I know that's a horrible story, but carry on. Sorry, I had to, that's, well, that's nothing to do with death done, by the way, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like with uh, Catching the Murderer, uh, I mean, some parts did come in close to what the novel did, but um, uh, like for... There was more than one murder, and we only in the film we got to see only one killing, even though they said there were so many killings. Yeah. Mm. And Alma was actually the first victim in the book, not the last one. Right. Um, so they, I know they had to slim it down to fit it all into an hour, uh, like an hour and a half film at that time, a two-hour film. But um, <clears throat> they could have put more of that in there. Maybe led uh, left out more of the politics of uh, True. Uh, yeah. True. So I think that was a lot more better of a story of him catching the murderer, uh, and then uh, than it was with um, uh, Stillman, uh, Stilson. And uh, at the ending of the story, um, Sarah wasn't even there uh, in the novel uh, when no. he, the assassination attempt uh, happened, and it was uh, it was a different lady with a different child. Um, but, I mean, it did tie it all back in together then. And it seemed in the movie, it showed that uh, Sarah had more of a relationship with Johnny than kind of, well, eh, than she did within the book, I guess. Because she, as he died at the end of the, the movie, she's hanging over the top of him and kissing him goodbye as he dies. Right. So, but with uh, the book to film with his mother's death, they pretty much stuck to the same story on that. As Barbara, I remember Barbara saying that uh, beforehand. Um, they did stick to some of it, but a lot they didn't. Um, the beginning of the movie, it, I think maybe you can answer this for me because for some reason I'm blanking out on this. Did Johnny and Sarah have sex before he driven off in his beetle into that into that fateful night, or did they just say goodbye? No, I don't um, think they did. No, the they did not. Right. He yeah. wanted to wait. It's yes. only because Johnny says one thing that I found quite weird in the movie. And the thing is, I saw the movie when it came out and I enjoyed it, but there's, um, but there's something that always kind of struck me because he says to goes, how old's the child? Like he thought that he might be the dad or something. It's kind of, it was kind of a weird thing. But like, and then maybe, yeah. It's only, and then after that, I kind of questioned myself, like, did they actually have sex before he went off on that stormy night or not? Because that's because he asked that question. I was like, she wasn't sick in the movie either she got sick in the yeah Yeah, she got sick in the book and back to you keith on that with the the pregnancy um when they uh when uh walt not walt uh herb when herb was getting remarried in the novel um sarah showed up with walt and she had little danny there with him but Johnny also noticed that she was pregnant with yeah. uh, <laughs> pregnant. And that's where I think you can get that question from because she had uh, an affair with him after his uh, surgeries and he it was um, after his accident. And I could see where you could think that um, because she's standing there and he's thinking, wait, it's not even been a year and we made love. Is that possibly my baby? You know? I could see where you become with that in the novel, but not in the not in the movie. Yeah, I just kind of wonder. It's only because he says that after, like, when he's I bring in my, ch- you know, they bring child over, and he, 
it, she comes to him, she comes to his bedside when he wakes up and he goes, Oh, I've had a child. And he's like asking questions about how old the child is. Like, well, that's a bit bizarre. I actually thought that was leading up to that, but it never happened. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got the vibe from that that it was like, Did I do something. <laughs> so I think am I getting the book messed up with the film or vice versa? <laughs> I, I got the vibe from that that it was more uh trying to figure out like how long did it take before you moved on? Maybe that's why he was asking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. he does feel kind of abandoned. Because he, he wakes up and to him, like like I think Vicky said earlier, it feels like, like yesterday. Yeah, but yeah, it's like yesterday. He's married. Right? She has kids now. What <laughs> happened? How yeah. long was I out? Well, did you hear his mother? She goes, she's abandoned you. That's the thing. The yeah. mother, the mother pl- plants that idea in there. But at the same time, guy's in a coma for five years. At, yeah. I, I get the whole idea of, of standing by and waiting. But there's a chance he may never come out of this. Was this woman who's, you know, 20s who went, or, on, who went on two dates with Johnny? Yeah. <laughs> the, was she supposed to just days. wait there for the rest of her life by his bedside? <laughs> like, what did you want? Yeah. Um, <laughs> didn't meet the parents that he was in the coma. <laughs> so he never even met them. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, Joe, Joe, you're right about that. In the novel, it makes it look like they're both okay with it. Um, uh, uh, Vera and Herb were okay with it, but uh, in the movie, Vera is not okay with it, but Herb is. So yes. um, I could but, see. I mean, Sarah's a great messy, isn't she? Not to stand by her boy. Yeah. Herb gets well, remarried after that, the old that, lady that, dies. Too. Even it out to all the country boys. Won't stand, won't stand by my boy's bedside. <laughs> it, it does. It does say something about uh, about the uh, about the mother's uh, repression that, that she's like, well. You went out with him a couple times. Well, that's it. That's that's your man for the rest of the yo. Know, that that's your woman for the rest of her life. Like yeah. this woman yeah. in her twenties went on two dates. Now she's supposed to wait the rest of her life to see if this guy happens to come out of a coma. It's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, well, I mean, after this, they say the movie does paint the relationship. It's, it's, it's like, like this long because the thing is the movie. You know, basically, we see Sarah and Johnny in the movie. Basically, it's like they're both teaching at the same. In school, it's like, oh, okay, well, I'm gonna take you somewhere special tonight, sort of thing. So you don't know how long the relationship is at all in the movie. That's true. Right. Yeah, in the movie, in the movie, it does seem like the relationship might have been longer. Yeah. Yeah. See, this is this is where doing both in one week, you just kind of conflate everything. <laughs> That's true. The, the, the movie does paint a picture like they like they were together for a while. Yeah. So you're never quite sure. And another thing is that, and the mother's not overly religious. She's just like. She's like my my grandparents back home. I mean, I mean, well, they were they were they were religious, but they weren't like crazy. You know, Bible shit. slapping yeah. you with it. Like, I can see your dirty pillow slapping you upside the head every time you do something dirty wrong. Pillows. Like, <laughs> your dirty pillows. This is my, are this is a mild, this is mild <laughs> religious. You know, she's a, she believes in God, and that's pretty much it. She's not going to push her. You know, you know, God has a message for you, and that's about it. It's a bit like you know. Um, basically it's like when someone that you know has like an accident or something like that and they go well don't worry god will see you through it's kind of like that they don't mean like this is god you know what i mean literally in the movie than it does in the book could you all think of christopher walken as the choice of actor for johnny perfect i think I thought it was yeah. interesting that Stephen King wanted Bill Murray. I was thinking, Bill Murray. Yeah, Bill Murray. I read that too. Oh, yeah. Bill Murray would be great. Oh. Well, David Cronenberg wanted the, the Castle Rock murderer to play Johnny. That's who his first choice was. Yeah. Yeah. Castle Rock murderer. Dodd. 
Dodd. Dodd. Right? Oh, okay. I thought yeah, Derek Cronenberg would have wanted James Woods to play James Johnny. Woods would have been good. You know, the funny thing about the Dark Zone, <laughs> the Dead Zone as well that I found, and the cut that I have at the moment, um, when I saw this at the movie theater in the first VHS, because I used to have this on VHS back in the day, um, that when the killer gets caught and he's in the bathroom and he goes down on the scissors, right. that basically you mm. saw him go down the scissors and the, and the scissors used to come out like this. I noticed they not cut that yeah. in my <laughs> version. Was it in any of your versions? Uh, it wasn't in mine. <sighs> I closed my eyes. There's a problem with the senses at that moment. <laughs> this this, this could be one of those Texas Chainsaw Massacre moments where, like, a lot of people insist that they saw. No, I took t- up my VHS yeah. and it's in the VHS. Wow. Oh, is it? Yeah, where basically he puts, and he, when he brings his head down, you see the scissors actually going in. I didn't see. I didn't think I, my version had had that. Yeah. I was yeah. watching it on DVD. I did not see that. Yeah, because I, I remember seeing it at the movie theaters going, God, I remember that being more graphic. And I, I was like, okay. And I dragged out my V, plugged in my VCR, which is never plugged in, and found, found the videotape. And I stuck it in there. I was like, yeah, it was there. So I know I wasn't dreaming it. Because, you know, sometimes you think, am I dreaming? Did I dream that? Or they, like and, the I, and then, when I, then I watched it again on the video. Right? I knew you never... there was a bizarre cut there. There's kind of like boop, boop. <laughs> not like a. You know what I hadn't realized, though, is that a lot of these books, I guess I just didn't pay attention when I was younger, crazy kid. But I didn't realize how many of these books got banned or were not allowed in libraries and things until I started doing, you know, starting looking up stuff and reading about it. And it's like I had no idea. I knew that a lot of people like, you know, I went to Catholic school for like, what, 10 years before I forced my mother to send me to public school. I was going (laughs) to quit. But um uh, they, they wouldn't have books like that. And then, you know, you know how you occasionally get excited. You find the like the like the Lisa Bright and Dark book hidden in the corner, you know, it's like, all right. About a teenage girl, about a teenage girl who basically commits suicide by the end of it, no matter what help she got. Yeah, that, that was mentally reading in my school. I just right, right now, like 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 Craig said something about James Woods possibly be playing Johnny. And now I can't get the image of a, a coked up James Woods fast talking, <laughs> grabbing Brooke Adams and slapping her for leaving because that's what James Woods would do. Yeah, like the James Woods, like that was James Woods would be grabbing odds. her like, what do you mean? I was only undercover for four years. Yeah, for you abandoned me, bastard. <laughs> like the against all of James Woods. This watch, this yeah. watch. Yeah, you know, it, it's just. I know. I'm I actually, love James. I'm actually waiting for those walkingisms to be um, come in through his acting in this, but <laughs> we get it quite down. We, we got it in the classroom scene when he's like reading um, Edgar Allan Poe. Right. <laughs> Edgar yeah, Allan Poe could have played Johnny. I mean, that would have been cooler. You know? <laughs> 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 The other, the other interesting thing when I was uh, when I was watching it, I was watching it with my roommate, and uh, he brought up uh, they're they're doing the Legend of Sleepy Hollow. That's that's oh. uh, what they're covering, and uh, Christopher Walken does end up playing the headless horseman later on. Yeah, he's a scary headless horseman. Yeah. He looks positively that? evil in that, the teeth especially. <laughs> and then the way he grabs the witch or whatever, you know, he's just yeah. going to take her right with him. You know, he was evil in that. I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> it always looks like he's going to punish someone on the nose all the time. <laughs> oh, I know. I love, I love how, well, he always, he's, he's good in anything he does, you know, like when he does, 
like his classic stint in in SN and SNL when he's doing you know the Don't Fear the Reaper, you know the, oh, the, the more cowbell thing. That is just epic, <laughs> you know, more cowbell. So I always think of Christopher Walken. I think of more cowbell. Yeah. This is Christopher Walken post Oscar before he became self parody because the self parody would come about a decade later. Right. So this was right in that point where he was just a great actor. Yeah. Yeah. Truly. I think another thing that's, um, you can look at Dead Zone is this is David Cronenberg's first American film made with American money. Everything before this was Canadian. Right. And of course, Videodrome, which came out the same year, was Canadian. It's not an American film, it's a Canadian film with James Uh Wood. This one. No second to me that film, but we'll be covering it in a couple of weeks. But this this was when I read when I rented the VHS tape in the nineties. This was my first Cronenberg movie, and I didn't, it's really an outlier when you look at the when you look at a lot of his films during that time. I mean, it does still deal with kind of the body horror that uh, yeah. that Cronenberg does, but not like in this case, it's kind of brain trauma and stuff like that, not the physical body horror that 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 we're used to with like shivers and. All those movies. So this was this was kind of strange. I keep reminding myself that that this was Cronenberg. (laughs) Hey Joe, I have a question for you. I think Dead Zone feels. Um, Don't you think the scene at the end with the tutor, um, the Chris? Actually, it was it was Chris in the film, but uh, Chuck in the book. But uh, don't you think it would have been a better, more dramatic part of the film at, at the end there? if it was the lightning striking the restaurant with all the individuals that died there as compared to uh, the kids falling through the ice. That's the film that that they didn't even include in the movie. I mean, ultimately, yeah. They said Christopher Walken was there for that to film that part of the movie. It was a second, seven second, whatever part of the movie. They had him there for three days and they didn't even put it in the film. Mm. Oh, wow. I don't understand why they took a high school senior and traded him for a pre, pre-puberty child with a bow cut. Nothing's worse than an American child in a movie with a bow cut. But anyway, this is what we got. But that was back <laughs> in the day, though. They, everybody had a bow cut back then. But, 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 I, but it got, I mean, in the book, I don't, I don't understand why they would change that because this character who's the, you know, growing to be an adult but then again, we don't get Johnny after after that hap- after that series in the book happens. Johnny goes runs off to where is it Arizona to find his life, and then basically it's the communication that he's having with this, his pupil going back and forth, and that kind of that's of course that relationship's totally wiped out, sort of thing. So we kind of get this movie of the week, like afternoon school special child sort of thing, and kind of like right. you know I helped you. He's like, oh, I, you know, I'm no daddy, I don't want to play hockey. His friends died, <laughs> like. And the goes, kid in this one seemed more like a plot device. Yeah. <laughs> plot device. Yeah, he seemed yeah. more like a plot device in this because in in the novel you you see Johnny start to develop an interest in politics. It's like the kid here is just like the wedge to to like. Yeah, bring it. it to it's me. how we're going to introduce him, and it, it doesn't like. Well, the father. Uh, I, I know a lot of you guys said this. It feels like a lot of it's glossed over in the movie. Well, the father figure is different as well because the thing is, he sees Stilson as a clown, right. but but he yeah. likes the theatrics of it all and everything like this. So he's not against Stilson or anything like this. Here, he's adamantly against Stilson. Oh, we gotta stop Stilson. We gotta stop that man in the tracks. He's evil. So I think this is what we get from the father. But in the book, he's not like that at all. He's, he finds Stilson as the clown. Well, it's because like, in the oh, movie, you need to you need to move it forward because you gotta you gotta get it in quick. You gotta get it in under two hours. Which to me, 
that's my big issue with the movie. And again, it's this is strictly a preference of mine, not necessarily right or wrong. It's still a great movie. Um, like, I, I felt like maybe you should have, cho- like, if you're going to do a two hour movie based on this novel, you should have chosen. Are they going to do? Are they going to do him going after the Castle Rock killer? Are they going to do the whole thing with Stilson? Because yeah. the, the whole thing with, we don't see Stilson until sixty five minutes into the movie or so. We we hear him mentioned when the reporter uh, uh, talks about it, but we don't see right. him until sixty five minutes into the movie, and he ends up being you know the quote unquote big bad. We don't get him getting the vision of Stilson launching the nukes until like fifteen minutes before the movie's over. Right. So it just feels like the right. whole thing's really rushed because it seems like they were trying to get all this stuff from the novel into the movie. And I feel like that, that did a disservice to it because I feel like had, had we instead done an hour and a half movie about the Castle Rock Killer, an hour and a half movie about Stilson, an hour and a half movie, uh, whatever. Episodic whatever. then. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. Like, like I said, that like, like to me, this style doesn't appeal to me. Doesn't mean it can't be done well doesn't mean it can't be it doesn't mean this can't be a great movie it's just it just felt the pacing, it, or, yeah. the pacing was off because the pacing was definitely off they spent too much time on some things and too little time on other things exactly i appreciated in the movie that they cut that mother's, <laughs> the mother's religiosity down you know they encapsulated it i appreciated that we didn't get a lot of stilson but we didn't get enough stilson we didn't there was nothing about stilson until you know all of a sudden here's this bad guy and and it, it was really played like a caricature, you know, and I, yeah. feel, and I feel like the mom was too. I mean, no bad guy is all bad. No religious crazy is just all crazy. I mean, there's just, they're just a cardboard cutout to me. That right. was the problem yeah. I had. Um, I did think Christopher Walken did a really good job. I think he, he can um, play wounded and, and, and beleaguered and everything. I mean, I, he, he seemed like, you know, in love and whatever, you know, when he said, leave me alone, I, I got it. <laughs> You know, he really sold it. He wanted to be left alone. But, um, yeah, it just felt um, stilted, you know. Um, it, it, they, they didn't pace it right. That's what I, I think. You're, you're I, really- think, I think what they had to do with the film, because I don't know, I haven't never, I haven't read the screenplay. I don't know what the screenplay was. I mean, I see what we see. But I think, I think what Cronenberg did well in the film was basically got actors that basically you saw them and you believe their likability of their characters through who the actor was. Like Colleen Dewhurst, you don't get a lot about her character, but when she comes on the screen, he's like, this is a presence to be reckoned with. And then when you get, you know, Brooke Adams as Sarah, it's all because Brooke Adams is a very likable actress. He's <laughs> like, you like her. It doesn't matter what she does. She could be, she could be stabbing you with a pair of scissors and you still like her because she's one of these kind of actresses. <laughs> you, know, you got Halbert Lom, who's basically, you know, the, the psychiatrist. Well, he plays a psychiatrist in almost every oh. And it's very good, but I found that we kind of had the and the only way that we could like figure out anything about these characters in this movie is by clever, very good casting. Because it's not because these people are, are no one was um, typecasted. They're all typecasted. No one was casted against type, were they? Uh-huh. Tom Sterrett always plays the good-hearted sheriff guy, you know, sort of thing. He's always. Did you think that I hate to bring <laughs> go back to the book real quick, but. Between the sheriff and and the sheriff in the book and the sheriff, did you think the sheriff in the book was maybe a little more lame than Tom Skerritt or maybe a little, I don't know what the word I'm trying to come up with. He was kind of a townie more than than Tom Skerritt presented. Because he's in a couple of the other books. 
Yeah, the sheriff isn't uh, like a football player, isn't he? A football player from the local school who's now the sheriff, sort of thing. Yeah. He's a really big man. He's 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 going to Johnny because it's the last last attempt because he needs to do something. Because if he doesn't do something, he's going to lose his job and everything like that. So we get all this whole storyline going on about him, sort of thing. And then when he finds out that it is his best friend, the person that he relies on the most, then we have this whole tour and sequence. Here, you know, we get. You know, Tom Skerritt's sheriff basically like jumping in all in. I believe everything that you are. I'm I'm, I'm going for this because this is my last. They don't have time. I think, I think that I know that you can do this, and it's a, it's a bit different I, dynamics. And there it's is because no, they don't have any time. Yeah, there's no relationship between that. That story particularly, the 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 Matt, the killer, the psycho killer, and the sheriff. That was the one that was just condensed too much. Mm. Yeah, it's the almost ten minute intervals, which is which I think really ultimately hurts it because you're just going bang, bang, bang. We got to get this in. We got to get this in. We got to get this in. Mm -hmm. You should have chosen the you know like 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 which story you were going to tell, and that's that's ultimately my my big issue with Mm -hmm. this because we don't have any time to let the characters breathe. We have to have them come in and immediately just get right to the point, and it's it's a quick ten minutes, a quick fifteen minutes, and bang, we're done. We're moving on to the next story. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you, Joe. I agree with you there. Yeah. I I think, <clears throat> excuse me, if they would have just stuck with the um, uh, the murder and um, him hit with the psychic abilities to see uh, the house burning, and then finally at the end with the lightning, with all the, they should have kept that scene in there. It would have been more dramatic. It would have made more to the film. Um, maybe they should have left out the Stilson, yeah. or done only Stilson and not. Castle yeah. Rock murder, one or the other is, right. is the way I feel they should have gone. Uh-huh. Uh, when I was um, about six, seven years ago, I was hired to adapt uh, someone's novel into a screenplay, and the novel basically was very episodic, like this: is this character going through all these different, um, all these different challenges in life, and I, um, and it was all told through like the eyes of his niece, and I was like, well, the issue here is like. I feel like we need to choose one of these adventures and flesh that out over, you know, 110, 120 pages. Uh, because ultimately I, I just felt like, uh, and I, I put it to him this way. I was like, your, your, your novel here is very good. The problem is I don't know if I keep it the format of the novel, if I'd actually be able to do it justice. Like, I, I feel like if we take these hundred pages here that you wrote about this and take that and turn it into one screenplay, it, it it would have worked better. Now, again, like I said before, and I'll, I'll keep saying it, the guy who wrote this went on to write Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and a whole bunch of other movies that I will never have the luxury of writing anything on that level. Mm-hmm. So it is what it is. Is it wrong? It's just my opinion. It, it's, uh, the, I still think the film is done very well. But I mean... I mean, yeah, as you know, with an adaption, because you know, I've done it, you know, I've written it, had to write their adaptions as well. And the thing is, I think where we got wrong here is what characters do you composite? You take like five or six compa- characters and you composite them into one. Yeah. And what, and what characters could you have done the same kind of storyline? Like basically Sarah and the nurse with the fire and all that. That could all be one character, really, sort of thing. Where she, Sarah comes to visit. He grabs a hold of Sarah. Basically, um, your house is on fire, blah dee da dee da That would have taken care of that, basically. And that would have fleshed out that storyline and you could have done so many different little composites sort of thing instead of having so many different little characters and little chapters going on sort of thing and i think this is the script this is the script writer's first adaption as well so that might be a problem as well but 
I think well, they, they probably could have composited the characters a bit better, sort of thing, instead of having a a cast of a hundred, maybe have a cast of twenty doing every, you know, combined. Right. They I mean, did yeah. do that by making um, Sarah and the woman whose child Stilson holds up. They right. did kind of combine them. Yeah, but that's the uh, um, idea that Sarah was in the movie at the end. Yeah, <laughs> I think you know, like, keep yeah, that's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brooke Adams, you want to use her? Yeah, that was kind of like that. That's to give you your, your heart, the heart felling thing that because uh, you know the movie does paint Sarah as like the everlasting love and there are these two star cross lovers that weren't together and and it also made it seem like she was in a loveless marriage that even though she's having kids she doesn't look very happy with her husband when you do see them no she doesn't and then she has that little moment with him you know i've waited long enough you know with johnny so (laughs) it's almost like she goes to her husband he will never be you you'll never be johnny this is my love i'm married to you you're only second best I do wish they would have put the end of that in the movie, though, where she goes to his grave, you know, kind of thing. She feels him touch her, you know, and then, yeah. then there's some kind of closure to that. But just the way she's there's not a lot of closure with this movie. Keith, no, I am about closure. Come up at the end, it ends abruptly. It ends very. Well, abruptly. I think that they tried to to like. For me, there I think go. they cut, tried to mix mix <laughs> parts and cut cut um, like in time. As as I think his name is Jim. Yes, Jim yeah. said before they the the lady that was on the on the stage with the baby was a different person. It was not Sarah. Right. But I think what they tried to do is to put it together so they can kind of like have it all in one in one scene instead of having like one part, because at that point she has moved away, she wasn't living near him, and it, here it seems like there is, all this happening in the same area, let's say Yeah. He actually, I think he went to New York to um, kill the politician and here oh, it's all like, all, everything was yes. no, I think it was New York New Hampshire, something like that in the book, oh, it was in New Hampshire, yeah, it was Rich, wait, think about Hamlet where Hamlet spends the entire play trying to decide to commit murder for his uncle, yeah. and this guy does it in like 30 seconds <laughs> yeah, I guess yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, they leave out the brain tumor there you go, Joe, there's not um, enough time I want to ask you something to, I mean, when I was watching the movie, you know um, I think, but uh, Christopher Christopher Walken is called right. He yeah. acts. It's his role is. So I like him, but I was all the time when I was reading the book. This actor was coming to my mind. Yeah. His name is Steve Buscemi, Buscemi, something like that. <laughs> I don't know. He has like a crazy face, you know, <laughs> in all the movies. And I thought, I don't know. I was thinking he, he would have made a great part, and. <laughs> I realized, like, I don't know, I think, like, um, about what um, Keith said before, I think that um, he was able to kind of help Sarah realize that, for example, that show her what was, like, a real love, because she was had, a, like, a really bad relationship before him. And mm-hmm. after, when she got married with this um, the new um, <laughs> husband, in one part, she realized that, she was happy, but he was having like a normal life. And when he told about the ring, right, she found it and then she threw it in the in the toilet and flushed it. And then it was in the book was saying that means a lot. Like a kind of like she was happy with this new man, but she didn't love him as she loved uh, Johnny. Yeah. 
so, first I, love, I guess. Yeah, yeah her well, true love, um, anyway. Her, her, first, her first love not being used like crap. So, <laughs> well, I don't know. Once I, I was studying philosophy in, in university, and then they said that the true love is is the one that maybe is not is not the one that that lasts forever with you. It's like is the one that was able to modify something in you, right? And then maybe yeah. maybe it never happened. And it, it, in in both of them make changes, you know. I think so. I really like the last part in the book when she goes to the graveyard. I think that was a really like good closing yeah. because it took her like I think like nine months or nine years to be able to actually go there mm-hmm. and say goodbye. Yeah. Um, I, I enjoy the movie. I think that the as as Joe said that the selection of how they made it was a bit strange. Um, I imagine they were trying to you know kind of condense the whole story and then you need to kind of sacrifice parts. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I've, I I never saw the movie. I just watched it today after reading the book. And I was really happy because probably it was having a spoiler. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. ruin the, the... Yeah. It was a little disjointed. I think that it was a little disjointed because of the pacing. That's what I think. Yeah. yeah. I did like yeah. it. I mean... There's one it's a, thing that we should keep in mind. Um, this was back in the 80s. When did the Dead Zone, the film, come out? 83. That's what I want to point out. This was a time, a period in filmmaking when uh, these large novels were coming out and screenwriters had a hard time adapting such big novels together. You know, like I just watched The Fog, both films, the one that was made way back in... in, uh, The new uh, one? Mm-hmm. The, the newest one, and I, I compared it, it to the oldest one. I did not like the remake no. at all. Remakes, <laughs> no. Mm-hmm. But the this remake year, is boring. Yes, very. But this year book actually, the Dead Zone. I actually think now with the the progression and the technology of of the screenwriters now who could adapt it better, I think a remake for Dead Zone would actually be a lot better than the original. You're right. Yeah. You're right, though, because they were taking be... all those John Jakes novels and everything back in North and South. I mean, they were they're doing all, all done, they're they're all done as long you'd, miniseries, weren't they? Like you'd have to, yeah, you'd have to either do a miniseries or you'd have to do like a three-hour epic or a three. Well, they did with the standard. Do like they did with the stand, like three or four nights or whatever. Break it up and do right. it. A made-for-TV movie, because I don't think people are going to actually go to the, the theater for it. To tell you the truth. Or, you, or you do what they did with it, and you break it up into two movies. Yeah. Mm. But exactly. They're doing, exactly. But they're doing that now, like on, uh, if you go to streaming uh, shows like Zulu and uh, all those other channels that stream right. it, if you notice those films there, they're actually stretching them out over three hours. Yeah. That's why a remake of this would actually be better. Even theatrical movies are, are, are long. I was actually shocked because I went to see Candyman and it was only like 85 minutes. I was like, wait a second, what? That is- there- <laughs> Every other movie I go to see in the theater now is like three hours, is like two and a half, three hours long. So uh-huh. nowadays, yeah, maybe we could just do uh, I mean, you're still always going to have that issue with a novel, though. Right. Uh, you're always going to have that issue where, where like you're going to have to cut a lot of a novel to get it into a movie, no matter what the length. Like yeah. even the stand. If we were to do the stand as it was written, it'd be a lot longer than a six hour, a six hour miniseries like it was in like ninety four. I didn't You'd like the reboot like, of that one either. The reboot that was, was worse. <laughs> I have to admit that was 
I liked it really. It was okay until the last episode, which is like, what the well, fuck Stevie, is this? Stevie, Stevie <laughs> special <laughs> message Ultimately, though, Stephen King is notoriously difficult to adapt to the screen, though. It's very rarely done well. I wonder if he does that on purpose. Is he trying to be difficult? <laughs> no, I think he's I think it's just a stream of consciousness writer. I think it's just how he is. No, I think I think no, I think that I think the problem basically is with Stephen King is that you know Stephen King writes you out a story, basically. And it's basically about everyday people caught in extraordinary circumstances. But but the thing is that there's a but you know I have to this is what I have to get Stephen credit um, Stephen King credit for that a lot of authors can't seem to do is that basically when you go into castle rock or dairy or whatever character you're going into and whatever book you're going into what you basically do is you get the every man or the every woman basically and you get her story and as you're reading through her story you're getting the setting and everything like this but he never he never makes the narrative boring at all you know it's not like you know, like what we did with like Count of Monte Cristo and Moby Dick and basically we got like a 150 page of whaling. Yeah. Stephen King can do that, give you all this information that you will find in that 150 books of whaling, but basically weed it through his narrative. So basically that you're not realizing that you're pulling all this stuff in. It's not in a fact, lot of exposition. Like, like, screen right in it. Compare Peter Strub when he was working with Stephen King <sighs> when they did the Talisman together or when they did Black House. And you can tell when Peter Strub was there because Peter Strub was all about narrative. Sure. And Stephen King gives you narrative, but he does it in a way that a lot of authors can't seem to do. And he blends it through everything. Yeah. And I think that's, and what happens is that you start reading a book, whether it's Cujo or Christine or Salem's Lot or it, so on and so forth. And even though he paints it in such a way that you're not, you're not aware that you're getting all this information fed through to you because it, because of the way that he writes and the way that he presents his stories. So what should become like a really easy movie to come out with, what happens is you got a movie that's an hour and a half or two hours long, and you have a lot of freaking information that you thought was just a book of this size, which basically should be a book about this size. Yeah. I mean, if, by the time you finish Cujo, a, a normal author would have tripled or quadrupled the size of that book for all the information. That's, um, right. Okay. Same thing, like, you know, if you take anybody who writes a stand, a stand's a thick book, but any other no novel author, that would have come out in two or three volumes, sort of thing. And that's what Stephen King's, and I think when it comes to the adaption, I think when it goes to Hollywood, like, I'm going to make an adaption of this. And you got to remember that the, the most popular of his adaptions are ones done from his short stories. Right. Yeah. The right. Body, Stand yeah. Shake Redemption, Three Mile, which is basically like, done by chapter by chapter which is actually a story. the mist is another short story or a which has the worst ending the, the green, of any the, movie i've ever the, seen the green mile was in like <laughs> 10 parts when i got that yeah the green I, mile. I had to, the books were like this this thin and i had to, yeah, <laughs> had to yeah, go yeah, through yeah. 10 to 15 pages each chapter and they came out weekly or every every couple yeah. of days <laughs> and if you, if you look at those adaptions because the thing is, is that what that, that's what transpires first because but I think Hollywood looks at like, oh, this is a simple story. Because, you know, when you read the jacket of a Stephen King book, there are simple stories, but not realizing that there are so many facets that's going on within the story. So I think that's why the movie versions are always let down. 
Right. You know, the fire starts more about, more about not, you know, you have Charlie and Charlie starting fires and she don't, wants to be bought by the, in the government and the fire starts her. But that's not the story. The story basically is that her parents were because of scientific experimentations and they're on the run sort of thing. And that's the story. Right. But then how do you bring this episodic story to an hour and a half movie starring right. Drew Barrymore and um, George C. Scott? There's no way to give it credence. Mm. And I think the dead zone kind of falls that dead zone's an excellent movie. I do think that if you're going to read the novel, wait a year and a half and then watch the movie and you probably enjoy it. Cause that's how I, yeah. <laughs> I love the movie. Really. I loved watching a fish tank boil. That was quite interesting. Oh yeah. I've never seen that. In a <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Before. Yeah. No, that was pretty spooky. Um, yeah. Or animal abuse. <laughs> I get all upset over animals. I swear to God, I'd rather see people die any day than the yeah. dogs or anything else. <laughs> Animals are So for the dead zone, would you recommend the dead zone? And or and or, or, if you do recommend it, would you recommend the book or the film? We'll Ooh, start with idea. you, Craig. Would you um, recommend the, film, the dead zone? And how would you compare it to that's the it, that's film? Yeah, it's, it's an enjoyable movie and it's a good read. I think I would, I would, because I did it. I've done it back to front, but I would say read. Read the book first because there's more meat in the book. Yeah, because right. um, in the, for example, in the book, you know, the killer is seen as this slick uh, psycho serial killer. But um, I just wish in the film, um, going back to what Joe and Jim had said, that I wish there was more character, not character build up, but um, I wanted to identify with the victims, more the, emphasis, maybe and some more empathy yeah. with them, yeah, yeah, and then also learn what are the motives. I know obviously he was a serial killer, but yeah, I want to know why, and I want to know why a pair of scissors. I mean, it's a bit of a quirky, th- um, I think it was the clothespin, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. we're just, we're Wouldn't that piss you guys that. off? Okay. <laughs> Wasn't some kind of sort of like a dentist um, scissors? They look like little denti- uh, scissors you know, that yeah. my nan would use for, for oh, doing God, like crafts and I mean, like scissors. knitting and <laughs> Scissors stuff. are like, just the weirdest thing. It's a bit of a weird quirky thing. <laughs> it is. A, but, oh, yeah. Um, you know, but, I was quite uh, impressed yeah, that he was able the, to get them stabilized on the on the sink to a point where they wouldn't move. <laughs> that was quite good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 Just, I thought he was going to put it through his heart. Uh, I mean, when, when, <laughs> that's what, what I thought too. Yeah. And it's just like, no, I hate eyeballs. I hate it. I mean, when you, you eyeball guys, anything, man. I just, <laughs> oh, don't watch the Terminator. I mean, in America, uh, I, I did. I watched oh, all that yeah. stuff, and you know, like, it, and and then you got like. Friday the 13th with an arrow through the eyeball. Yeah. Anything with people squashing or gouging. <laughs> Squishy things like that. You know, you're, you're it's like, what, I'm, what I'm hearing here, Keith, is I'm that like, we need to show Vicky some Lucio Fulci movies. No, I don't. No, I was watching some Fulci the other night ago. No, no, <laughs> what was I watching? Oh my God. My section of an eye you'll never get over. Uh, <laughs> eyeballs. Eyeballs <laughs> the way, everywhere. Uh, the only way we commit suicide in England is by getting an IKEA oh, kit. No. 
I'm trying to. <laughs> Yeah. That's if you can get out of IKEA. That's if you get out of IKEA. Hey, yeah. would you like to look at this? No, I don't. But, I'm just, um, this table. The, I got some like I got some um, chill moments where I think it was like in the fact, well, not the fantasy, when he was having the predictions. Oh, right. Um, the, uh, when the Hitler scene and when he contacted his mother and um, when the house was on fire that was quite gave me a few chills and especially the ice hockey when i saw the the frozen lake and the kids on drowning i was thinking oh my god don't go to that game but yeah it was (laughs) one thing to say omen 2 does that better (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) where we grew up we were always on ponds and stuff like that back in the day we never thought of it yeah but i mean we used to get like 12 to 15 feet of snow a year and basically the temperature never went above like zero degrees fahrenheit (laughs) yeah that's like newcastle you know a good summer was uh, eight foot of snow (laughs) i love how i love how 80s it was when when he was having rehab on the crotches and the guy was just like Uh Just, you know, oh yeah, that's come, bad. come on, man. Let's yeah. just, you know, it's, I know it's frozen. Like yeah. health and safety nowadays, yeah. you probably wouldn't even be able to um, <laughs> sadistic risk really assessment. Care worker, you know? like, yeah, yeah, go on. <laughs> but but um, yeah, that's another thing. It's, 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 it's Stephen King only got one jumper. Is that the picture <laughs> I've seen? That's why he likes movies. So he can like jumper. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. This is long, I'm okay with Stephen King just as long as he's not acting in anything. It's like, oh no, he's, he's trying again. <laughs> what do you guys already f- um, would you um, would you recommend Dead Zone the film? Yeah, yeah. I, I really, I really, really enjoyed the film. Sorry, yes. <laughs> was it me? What about yourself, Jim? Would you recommend the film? And and um, would you recommend it over the a book, or would you just recommend the film on its own, or recommend both? Um. Open-minded. Actually, uh, who who you talking to, me or? <laughs> no, I say just tell everybody keep an open mind if they don't like it. That's what I would say. Okay. Um... <laughs> I know what Joe's going to say. <laughs> um, Joe's actually... already freaked out. A little, <laughs> might, might throw a little curveball at you. Joe's already freaked out because I put the um, woods into his head now. <laughs> James Woods. <laughs> Yeah, he's thinking. <laughs> yeah, he's thinking. He's thinking. I actually like the. Um, I'd re- recommend the book. Um, the movie to me, um, I think, was kind of done in a rush. Um, mm-hmm. I actually look forward to a remake on a film. Really? On I bet you it happens too if they're not already thinking about it. Yes. Yeah. Like they know. Like David and Craig said about the mo of the murder. Um, you know, using the scissors. I mean, in the book, it was a sword he killed himself with. Wow. Yeah. And he mm. cut his throat sliding down on the sword. That right. would actually made a look a better horror scene in the film. <laughs> yeah. There would have been blood cannons, at least, you know, yeah. for that one. Yeah. Just like, where are the blood cannons? Because <laughs> uh, in the book, it described it as a really horrible horror, horror scene with the raincoat he was still wearing and blood blowing everywhere. <laughs> And then the M- the MO, I didn't like the MO was changed in the, he, he strangled the people in the book and he right. didn't stab them. He, he stabbed them in the movie. But didn't he strangle a couple in the movie, the little girl or the one girl that, uh, by the, by the bandstand? No, like it was, he the scissors. Uh, was it scissors? Yeah. He pulled out the scissors to stab her after. 
Oh, I thought he kind of killed her first and then did and, the nasty. And the, book, and the book also had an interesting thing, which I think that if you're filming this today, that they would actually, because of CG, CSI and things like that, mm-hmm. the thing that, the reason why there's never DNA, because he wore gloves and a raincoat. So when they yeah. were, when the girls were pawing at him and crawling at him to get him off and yep. fighting at him, they're just going against this vinyl. That's when <laughs> it's it's weird that as a serial killer, he um, <laughs> took his own life just in the, in the like, just because the sheriff had come to his house. He yeah. just thought, yeah, that's it. Probably ashamed. And his mother knew the whole time. Remember when he grabs her, he goes, you yeah. knew. Yeah. At least yeah. they kept that in there too, because she knew both times. Well, another the thing is, the movie. a cop going to prison is not normally the best thing in the world. Oh, yeah, not for true. a cop. No, everybody uh, wants really, to hire really. on as your buddy. But in the book, he knew that uh, the psychic, uh, he knew that uh, Johnny knew who the killer was just right. by like that. But in the movie, you don't pick that out. That that one scene with the tunnel as well was mm-hmm. just, I, I love really scene. loved how they lit that scene yeah, with the silhouette of the three guys yeah. in the tunnel. So that was great. Yeah. Kind of sort of, uh, we went to, uh, sorry, just back uh, off the track a bit, but it's, uh, we're in Stoke and Trenton and we went to uh, uh, near Lincoln and there was a big long tunnel going down. It was like nearly half a mile long, you know, yeah. walk down with Morgan and you could clap your hands and it got this great acoustics, you know. So we actually got our phones out and we're recording a song in there, you know. <laughs> the reverb was great. <laughs> but uh, the way the light comes through, you know, it's like walking down the, the you know, the James Bond scene at the beginning. Oh, yeah. You know, and you look down that barrel. Great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> ah, that's the one. And it has to be Sean, not Roger. <laughs> Sean. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Has to be shown. I don't think we're hearing the same voices. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, when they, it's when they answer you back, you got to worry, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sorry. And what about yourself, Joe? What are your thoughts? Would you recommend that? Not movie? enough time. <laughs> I do love the movie regardless. Um, like I I would say actually kind of the inverse is that if you're going to, if you, I would recommend both. I'd say watch the movie first. Yeah. Because yeah. if you like the movie and you want more of it, you can go and read the novel. Yeah. That's really a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. that's the best. Because there's a that's lot the of gaps. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of gaps. And uh, I do have to, because we, we referenced it in one of our films, uh, when Dave Canfield and I made The Perfect Candidate in 2012, uh, we developed it, and we were talking to Joe Estevez, uh, who was Martin Sheen's brother, early on. Uh, I remember meeting with him at like uh, at like a Denny's at like eight in the morning in L.A. We were sitting, in a, we were sitting in a booth, and I had pitched him this idea, which was going to be completely off the rails, and he wanted to kind of streamline it. And he's like, "What if I'm a political candidate who is just kind of, you know, just off the cuff, you know, speaking like the common man?" But then I, tur- you know, it turns out that I'm that I'm being conned myself, and um, we. We were like, you know what? That's really great, especially that we we put in a line where you know, um, uh, why, why don't you ask my brother? Everyone everyone looks at him as the president, or whatever the line was, <laughs> and we we wanted to throw it in there, a reference to this. He's also somebody who played a candidate that uses a baby as a human shield, so maybe it's not the best <laughs> the best. Uh, Wasn't a great optic. <laughs> and I loved, I love that we got to reference that because this movie was so iconic to me uh, uh, growing up. It, like, like I said, it's the first Cronenberg movie. It started me going and seeing other Cronenberg movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it might have been the first. Like, I think I was like ten or eleven when I rented it. So I think it's probably the first time I'd seen Martin Sheen. Uh, probably the first time I'd seen Christopher Walken too. I, I, I can't oh. really. 
uh, place it. So to, to me, this was th- th- this movie has a nostalgic uh, bent to it because it got me started on so many other. Uh, it, it sprouted yeah. so many branches. Yeah. Um, but I would recommend both. I love both. And for all the, the the stuff I said about the movie, like I've said about all my opinions on this movie, just because it's not the way I would do it doesn't mean it's an incorrect way right this movie for for what i perceive to be its faults right or wrong makes it work and it's a great movie at the end of the day is it as good as the novel i don't think so but i think it's because the novel has a lot more time to breathe yeah but i would definitely recommend both and i'd say see the movie first yeah that's 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 a good good way of there's, there's a doctor who i think that's done like a parody of this um with matt smith where and it's called let's kill hitler Oh, yeah. um, and he goes back in time, and I think one of them, <laughs> Hitler, knocks him out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so nice. Way, That's you? a good one, yeah. <laughs> What's your thoughts, Vix? Uh, uh, well, I, I mean, I was trying to figure out what, what to say about both of them, and then Joe said, well, watch the movie first, and then if you want more, read the book, and that pretty much takes care of my analysis because it's true though. If, you, if the movie doesn't have enough for you and you want more detail and you're, you're yeah. thirsting for more of the Stephen King story, go read the book. Cause you know, like Kindle's got 600 pages of it. And um, it, it, I didn't think that they stepped too far off in the film. They just like, like Joe was saying, they just, it's a huge novel. I mean, well, it's not, well, yeah, it's one of his bigger ones. Normal novels are not this big, but um it's Stephen King. So it's going to be hard to adapt it to screen and make it perfect. It's not going to be perfect, but I mean, I, I, I love the movie. And like I said, you know, reading the book, I had never read the book. I don't know how it got past me, but, um, but reading the book and then reading the end, it kind of was more like I was saying, it was heartfelt and sad. There was regret, sadness and bittersweet kind of all wrapped up. And I, I thought it's it's a really good book, and the movie was great too. Well, when when it comes to novels, they're always going to be, especially longer novels, they're always going to be yeah. more difficult because any when you write a screenplay, and this is for anyone who's familiar with screenplay format, what eats the majority of the pages is dialogue. Yeah. Um, and generally speaking, when you're looking at a screenplay, you average about a minute per page. So when you're looking at a novel, which is so much description, yeah. especially King, who goes into a lot of description, yeah. that's going to, if you were to take everything page by page that Stephen King writes in every novel, you would be looking at maybe five, six pages of a screenplay per page of a novel. I don't know if that's necessarily right. So you'd, it'd be impossible to do this as like a standard movie. Yeah. But like a two. Massive detail. Yeah. Massive. Yeah, <laughs> but um, for me, um, as far as the film is concerned, uh, I, it's one of my favorite Cronenberg films. As far as when I say favorites, it was the easiest Cronenberg film for me to watch. Um, Videodrome, which we'll be covering in two weeks, disturbs me. It makes me feel ill every time <laughs> I'm seeing it. So but, uh, I love it's a disturbing film. already. But I, what I have to say about, about the video is you like I guess who's in it, James Wood. The way that it's filmed, the way that it looks, the, the, <laughs> the acting is fantastic. Anytime, you, anytime you're going to put Colleen Dewhurst in a film, you're you're winning right there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one small role, and to be honest, when you come away from Dead Zone, 
I almost forget about Christopher Walken, and I always, you know, years afterwards, I always remember Colleen Dewhurst in that small role as the domineering mother. About she was so strong, such a strong character actress too. Well, she she steals everything, whether it's um, when a stranger calls. Yeah, he was in the book Sex, the Madonna book Sex, in the nineties, I think, as well, because um. I remember, I remember him being in that book and um, sneaking. That was some- like ninety or ninety-one oh, because I worked at a bookstore then, and I remember <laughs> that table book. Everybody was freaking out about it. Naked Madonna. Uh, I know. Yes, you are. You know. But I mean, as far as the David Cronenberg film is, I think as I think it's a very, very good film, and I think that it stands. I think it stands alone in its merit. Um, as a representation of Stephen King, I think it's uh, dipping your toes into a Stephen King novel sort of thing. And David Cronenberg gave it his all and cast it fantastically well. Yeah. And considering that they filmed this at sub-zero temperatures in around Niagara Falls, around where Vicky and I grew up, and one of the worst uh, worst winters ever um, in 1982, um, <laughs> which is quite good that he was able to use all that and, um, and make use of all that. So, you know, we're not looking at, fake snow here we're looking at real snow and environments and stuff and you know as the Cronenberg as far as the Cronenberg film I think this is a gateway drug in the Cronenberg this is the safest movie to watch of all his films definitely (laughs) safest (laughs) and as far as the novel is concerned I I think I think I I love this film The Dead Zone I think my only problem basically is is that I read the book when it came out loved the book The Dead Zone the movie came out four years later saw The Dead Zone loved it but never went back to reread the book. You know, the book lived, lived there in my memory and the film lived there in my memory. I think the only problem is, is reading it and watching it too closely together. And I finished the book a week ago and I watched the film yesterday and that's pretty much what we have. Sort of thing. So, but I think it's both two different entities. I think they work fantastic and I represent both. I would recommend both of them. I'll bring people over to my house and let's watch The Dead Zone. <laughs> and I'll throw the paper back at yeah, read the book. I don't, I don't know that the Dead Zones a movie though, where like I'd gather friends to watch it. I feel like this is something where maybe more of a small group. Undercraft <laughs> select. Do you write it? No, I, I mean I've I've shown the Dead Zone to people and they really really liked it sort of thing. I I I don't show it to people who are horror fans, the people who don't really like horror. And I'll show them the dead zone sort of thing. Well, it's because, intense. I mean, it's at least a thriller, if anything. So, I mean, yeah. And it, it's, the acting in it is fantastic. I can't, I can't fault one actor in this film whatsoever. I think the acting is fantastic. No, the performances so, are all fantastic. Yeah. And this is David Cronenberg for the first time not using his stock characters. Before that, yeah. if you look at everything for the dead zone, well, just, every yeah. every actor he used over and over and over again. This is the first mm. time actors that he never worked with before. And I think he pulls it out of the bag, so I think so. I'll give him that. <laughs> he does a great, it's a, he did a great job. I mean, so this brings us to the end of the Literary License podcast, the, Dar- the Dead Zone by Stephen King and the 1983 film by David Cronenberg. Next month, our book to screen is Cabal by Clive Barker and the 87 film Nightbreed. We'll be, co- we'll be covering not the theatrical cut, but the director's cut because it's the way that Clive Barker wanted us to see. This episode will be Bewitched. Of course, we'll be um, um, long, elongating our Bewitched. Instead of covering four episodes, we're covering eight episodes. 
And of course, two for one is no longer Nature versus Man or AKA the Greta Thunberg Film Festival, which we were calling before, <laughs> but is now called the 80s, where we'll discover 1980s horror films. Now, we will not be covering any films as part of a franchise or anything like that. These would be standalone 80s films that are found basically. Well, if it was the UK, you had to ask behind the counter for them. The nasties. Slightly <laughs> off of center. And our first two films will be David Cronenberg, Scanners from 1981, and Videodrome from 1983. And of course, we will be elongating on the, at the end of the month with Dark Shadows, which will be covering 40 episodes instead of the normal 20, 20 episodes. And of course, they'll be covering episodes from December 1968 to January 1969. So it's good night for myself and good night, Jim. And thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. Good night, Craig. Hello, Craig, Dave. Good night. Thank oh, you. And it's so nice to meet you guys. And it's been good fun tonight. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. It was. <laughs> and good night, Joe. Good night, everyone. Great seeing good everybody again. And I believe we're seeing you for the 80s as well, aren't we, Jim? Next. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah. The more the merrier. Yes. Party. <laughs> Party. <laughs> Bonus. Bonus. <laughs> Wayne's World. Good night, Vicky. Night, everybody. Good night, And next month for Cabal.